Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Ifdecker, a medieval historian, and today I'll be talking about Robin Young's 2006 novel Brethren with Tegan Robinson. Hi! Hi! How are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm great. <laughs> so yeah, welcome. And do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and why you selected this particular book? Oh, well, I chose this book, uh, well, I read it when I was 16, uh, so back in probably 2006 when it came out. I wonder if I bought it new. That's very odd for me. <laughs> I usually buy used books. But I picked it up because I was in a phase where I wanted to know more about Templars, but didn't really know where to go to get the information mm-hmm. because, you know, Google really wasn't a thing, right. I think. I think Ask Jeeves was the thing, <laughs> which was a browser that I absolutely loved. And, uh, you know, there was nothing much in my library because I went to a public school. There wasn't anything much in there other than what they wanted to teach us. So I picked this up going, maybe I'll learn a little something. And I love fiction anyway. So that's where that came from. But I, I read it a lot. I think I read it probably four or five times the whole series through when I was between like 16 and 18 and just loved it. But then reading it now is a very different experience. It's, I don't, I didn't remember much from it when, from when I was 16, because it was 13 years ago that's right. when I started reading it. And so, my, I mean, my memory's terrible as it <laughs> is anyway, but yeah, it's just the things that I remember about it from when, from that time were very, very small portions of this book. And I was reading most of this book going, I don't remember any of this <laughs> happening. I don't remember these people, these interactions. Like it was just a, like, it would have been just like one chapter that I focused on. And when we get there, I'll talk about mm-hmm. that. But yeah, that's, that's um, when you invited me on the podcast, I was like, I'm, I was torn between this series and there was another series about Mongols that I read. Mm. Um, that's the kind of fiction, uh, fiction historical book series. But I didn't really think that was, in your purview really um, oh, I can do Mongols you can come back and do that one <laughs> yeah 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 I do think this one is more interesting and it, dramatic the Mongols one uh is a bit dry I think I'll have to reread mm-hmm. that before uh, us <laughs> going for an ep if we ever do that but yeah I just uh, I remember liking this book a lot more than the uh, Mongols one but yeah that's how I got into it and yeah just a, I'm just a big book person as the mountains of books that remain unread in my house would tell you. But <laughs> Same. I do, I do love historical fiction, but I like it better when they get the history right instead of the fiction right. part. Yeah, this would have come out, you said it's 2006. So this would have come out, I guess, when I was in early college. And because I'm a weirdo, mm-hmm. I knew when I started college that I wanted to be a medieval historian. And so 2006, I would have been a sophomore. And I feel like that was the point already when I was increasingly having a hard time reading historical fiction about the middle ages because I would read yeah, like yeah oh I yeah, have like a really hard time stepping back and not being like oh that's wrong oh yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely like if if I had more of a background in any type of historical education I would be ter- tearing this book apart as you probably were as you were reading it because <laughs> it's like no 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 <laughs> No. <laughs> yeah, and I will say there are things that, you know, we'll get to this, there are things that, that she does definitely get right, but also things that not so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think she's very liberal with her use 
of the word like historical fiction yeah. like the fiction's there <laughs> the history not so much yeah like there's definitely there are definitely moments where i'm like you did your research robin young yeah you you sat down and you know some things so good on you yeah which yeah. i don't always feel when i'm watching certain movies oh yeah totally yeah yeah <laughs> Robin Young is an English historical fiction writer in general. And so this seems to have been, as far as I could tell, just Googling a bit, this seems to have been her first trilogy. It takes place during the ninth and final, essentially, uh, Middle Eastern Crusade. And my guess looking at the kind of things about the next couple of books is that it must end more or less with spoiler alert, the destruction of the Templar Order in 1312. I believe that's correct. I have the books right like right next to me because I was looking through them before trying to find something. The last book is called uh, Requiem, uh, Lost, uh, The Fall of the Templars. Right. <laughs> so, yes, I I, uh, I believe that is probably, yeah, that would be the end they, of the book. But they must fall. It'd be very interesting to see what that's yeah. like. <laughs> and she's also written a trilogy on Robert the Bruce, who has shown up in a number of other podcast episodes. And now seems to be working on this series, which basically seems to be everything that happened in the 15th century in one book. So it has the Wars of the Roses, and it has the Medicis in Florence, and it has the Court of Ferdinand and Isabella in Spain. So I'm curious as to how that actually gets tied together in a way that makes any sense. Who knows? But Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. I haven't seen anything about her new novels yet. I'll have to check that out and see how that goes. Because I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that her writing has evolved past 2006 (laughs) writing. Because some of it's a bit like, quote-unquote, of its time yeah. and it's just yeah i'm really hoping she's uh, uh grown up a little bit with her writing yeah and her prose is not awful but it's also not elegant yes yes our first main section is the enumeratio or recap section where we go over basically the plot of the book so i'm going to do a just brief orienting plot summary and then we can get into more of the details will campbell grows up as a sergeant in the temple in london with the goal of becoming a knight templar to follow in the footsteps of his estranged father after tragedy strikes in paris he is forced to become the apprentice to the ill-tempered scholar monk everard and eventually begins an affair with Elwyn, the niece of his late mentor. Everard eventually reveals to him that he belongs to a secret sect within the Knights Templar, the Anima Templi, whose goal is to reconcile the three faiths and bring peace to the Holy Land and the world. Best of luck with that. And he tasks William with recovering the Book of the Grail, the Anima Templi's seemingly heretical initiation book, from the hands of those who fought the downfall of the Templars, including the future King Edward I. William's story is told in parallel with the, mostly, true story of Baibars Bundukari, a Mamluk commander who becomes sultan and whose implacable hostility to Christians and military prowess proves an obstacle to the goals of both Christians seeking conquest and the Anima Templi. And we actually begin with uh, Baibars, who is basically just portrayed as being this psychopath who hates Christians above all else. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah it's very rough in that first chapter because it's just i mean we're put right into the action like there's no boring like once upon a time or like background there's just we're just like bam into a battle straight away and you don't know what's going on who these people are (laughs) and it takes like four or five pages for it to kind of like piece together like 
who the sultan is and where how Baybars kind of falls into the hierarchy of this army and I like it but then it's also like whoa (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean I like the idea of kind of putting you into the action in that way I think that's a cool strategy but it definitely is also a lot especially if you're not super familiar with the period Yeah, yeah yeah So we have this battle, which is between the Mamluks and the Mongols, and the Mongols are defeated. However, he doesn't really seem to care about them. He really just seems to want to fight Christians, which seems to have something to do with his past, where at some point he, it seems like what, it seems like he was a slave. It seems like at some point he was a slave to Christians. Yeah, yeah, they do allude to that in the chapter. But I mean, they do explore that a little bit more later on. But yeah, all we know at that point is he was a he was a former slave. He's in this army. Somehow, there's a little bit of a mystery surrounding his background at this point. We then go to a completely different part of the world, and now all of a sudden we are in France. And so there's this thing called this thing, the Book of the Grail. We don't really know what it is, but like somebody clearly has stolen this book and is running around with this stolen book and somebody's chasing him and he dies. And then the book then ends up in the hands of this wine merchant who doesn't know what it is because he can't read. Yeah, yeah. And it's 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 such a um, an interesting uh, smash cut to this chapter from the last chapter because that was action-packed at the end of the battle they had won we're being introduced to those characters and then it's just some guy uh, running down an alley being pursued by mystery men and then and it was just like whoa what's happening we've already just like jumped into the action and now we're seeing more action and i do love it it's so interesting and for books of it in 2006 you didn't really have a lot of that at the start there was always like some meandering about who people were and then the action came later but yeah ends up in the hands of this wine merchant and he stashes the the book of the grail behind some barrels i believe Mm -hmm. and then takes off and i was like great that's that's a super hiding place but sure (laughs) and then yeah like everybody who's searching for the book dies and this merchant's like oh huh a book that's cool looking yeah exactly but he also can't he can't read like this is my thing is that shouldn't he be able to read in some respect yeah you know there's as a merchant and like i don't know much about that time period but i assume that he would be able to read things for his business and so i don't know i don't i don't recall if the book of the grail was in a different language on the front of it and he was like oh there's a mystery book cool but I also don't know if books were that revered back in that time either. He certainly would have known that a book would have been very expensive, at least. And, like, and especially my sense based on the description of it was that it was clearly a very kind of high quality book in appearance. So he clearly would have known that this is an object of value, at least. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't make sense, as you said, like it doesn't make sense that he couldn't read it all. If you're a merchant in the 13th century, and it even actually says he's pouring over his account books... So if you're keeping yes, accounts, yes, like, right. you can read. And even if, I don't remember if it ever actually explicitly says this, but even if this book of the Grail is in Latin, I mean, it certainly does not say it's in, like, Arabic or Hebrew, a, you know, something where there's a completely unfamiliar alphabet. So my assumption is that it's supposed to be in Latin. And he at least would have been able to read the words. He might not have known exactly what it meant, but he would have been able to read the words and especially because you know French is a a romance language he also probably would have been able to puzzle out some of what it probably was Mm -hmm. saying or at least like what the title was yeah yeah so that that's um I guess plot hole number one it's just 
Yeah, so, and they clearly do that, I guess, I don't know, and I guess they just do that really to kind of make the point that people can't read in the Middle Ages, to be honest, so. I guess, is that, is that how it usually was? Is that, in for that time period, that people, like, a majority couldn't read? Probably a majority couldn't, but I guess literacy is becoming increasingly common, and this is definitely mm-hmm. a moment where people who are fairly well-off merchants they probably mostly would have been able to do at least some basic reading in the vernacular. And so it's one of those things that is very much a stereotype, a stereotype of the Middle Ages that nobody can read. And it feels like it's just playing too much into that stereotype without having kind of looked into the details of actually it kind of makes sense that this person should be able to read. And it's internally inconsistent that he is keeping account books, but he can't like read the title of a book. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's precisely what I thought when I read it um, this time around. When I was 16, didn't take any notice. I was like, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, fair enough. People don't know how to read in the 13th century. Right. Like, I had no concept of what happened in that era or anything like that. Yeah. And yeah, and that's probably, you know, the assumption that she had about, like, her readers in general is that they don't necessarily know that sort of things. Yeah, yeah. And perhaps she played into that stereotype to kind of introduce us to, like, new readers who know nothing about medieval right. ages or any you know, anything going on. But is that giving her too much credit? I'm not sure. Right. Yeah, it's at the very least, it's clear to me that she kind of did research in some areas and didn't quite do research in other areas. And I would say Mm -hmm. in general, Mm -hmm. the kind of biggest area where I would say historical fiction writers tend to not do as much research as they should is in the realm of social history, which I think is a problem because I'm a social historian. But also because I think uh. it gives a better texture of life if you have a better sense of uh, that kind of aspect of how the world worked in people's mentalities. Mm-hmm. And my guess mm-hmm. is she didn't do a lot of that research. I think her research probably focused basically on like the Crusades and the Knights Templar. Okay, yeah, I can see that, definitely. We then meet Will, who is very 14 years old. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> no kidding. He... And his friend Simon are secretly watching this knight being initiated into the Templar order, which I guess they're, which they're like Templar trainees, basically, and so they're not supposed to be doing that, and they're sneaking around and doing that anyway, as you do, because you're 14. <laughs> yeah, as you do when you're 14 and in the Middle Ages, I guess. I guess, right. <laughs> well, no, like, no. And again, it's just one of those yeah. things where it's like, okay, fine, I'm sure 14-year-olds also, you know, maybe did that sort of thing in the Middle Ages, but it's also like, did you look up anything about what, like, childhood or teen years would have been like in the middle ages almost certainly not will in general seems like a very modern teenager as we follow him in this book like and he's just been transported to this uh 13th century era and it's yeah it's he's very and there's other characters as well that feel that way exactly yeah and obviously there are some things about teenagehood that are i guess biological like about you know when your hormones are kicking in and things like that but also a lot of them are social and a 14 year old in the middle ages is basically an adult Mm -hmm. and would be treated as an adult or near an adult in a lot of circumstances and the fact that he does not at all act in that way feels somewhat anachronistic yeah yeah he's very much like his behavior he's 14 in this book at the moment but he acts like i imagine like an eight or nine year old of that time would act you know a little bit rebellious and a little bit you know he's sassing people who are senior to Mm -hmm. him and 
and and that kind of thing and um yeah it did yeah especially when the, he meets some characters later on it's like oh okay yeah this is a very like modern interpretation of how people would have acted in that time yeah and of course also the other thing about will will is supposed to be 14 at the beginning by the end of the book will is i guess what about 20 Something like that. Yeah, we go through, there's a, a few like time jumps in there when it's like smash cut six years later. Right. And then it's, and yes, I think, yeah, I believe 20, maybe early 20s. He doesn't act that much more mature. No. <laughs> <laughs> he really doesn't. He really like, yeah, he really does not. Yeah. So that's something of an issue as well. Like character development wise, mm-hmm. that he kind of still acts like a... 21st century American 14 year old at 20 as well yeah yeah and I think that's why I thought I remember him just being 14 throughout the whole book and I was surprised when we got to the chapters when it skipped ahead and I was like wait a minute (laughs) I remember him acting later on in the book like towards the end of the book the exact same yeah it just seems very inconsistent that he hasn't grown and learned from the experiences he goes through he goes through which is a lot of them some harrowing, some different, some, you know, he goes through a lot and he doesn't really learn from any of that or have personal growth from any no, of that. No, he really doesn't. We learn that he has this mentor, Owen, who is his uncle, who seems vaguely disappointed in him, which I get. Knowing Will for this, what, three pages? I get oh, it. Yeah. I was fully on Owen's side oh, yeah. at this point. I feel like that's like one of the big changes that happens when you're reading books as an adult about teens or watching movies is that you realize, no, I sympathize with the grown-ups now. Oh, totally. When I was 16, I would have been like, this is BS. Will's being chewed out for no reason. Why can't he do the things he wants to do? You know, in a pure 16-year-old, I feel so restricted by my parents' way. Exactly. But now I'm like, no, I'm totally on the adult side. Like, you're an idiot, Will. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) my experience of Little Mermaid is actually like that, that, you know, I watched this movie as a kid, and then, you know, get into my teens, and I'm like, yeah, like... They should. They don't have the right to do that to you. Like teens have rights, and now I'm like, no, go to your room, young lady. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, I definitely relate to Little Mermaid. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm like, listen to your father. He knows what's best. Like, he's just looking out for but you. You, know, you should not be chasing after some men you don't know. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, there's a whole conversation related to that that we could have. Yeah. Well, we'll not get quite uh, along that that sidetracking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we learned that uh, Will's father is in the Holy Land as well. We also meet Jacques, who's the other, like one of the other um, like full-scale Templars, who seems like kind of a jerk, but also you kind of can't blame him. Mm-hmm. Back in the East, we meet uh, the Sultan, Kutuz, and uh, get the sense that Baibars basically like hates him because he doesn't always want to murder all of the Christians. <laughs> yeah, Baibars is quite like bloodthirsty like he's just he's just like wipe them all out let's just doesn't matter what it costs just go in and wipe them all out like that's going to solve the core problem that they're having which is you know that the franks are in his land right especially of course because i mean by this point they're already sort of on their way out i mean jerusalem was conquered over a century ago Mm. and so it's like okay like chill dude like you're you're already winning like you could calm down a bit yeah yeah exactly and he also asks to be given the governorship of aleppo which uh, kutuz refuses so babars decides to kill him i guess yeah yeah (laughs) 
that's uh, that's very so that's so reactionary. Like I feel like that we need more background to Kutz's like reign and things like that to fully understand yeah. his like Baybar's motivation because he's just like you're not going to give me this thing. All right, I'm going to get rid of you. Right. I and and we're just like what? <laughs> it seems a little like that escalated quickly. Yeah, yeah, and it, their fight that they have was very tense. As much as I don't really like how uh, Robin uh, Robin Young wrote a lot of this, her dialogue I really do like yeah. for some of it, and just in the in the that she does really ramp up that tension in there, and you really feel how aggressive and antagonistic they are to each other, but trying to play it under this guise of politics. Yeah, even the scenes that are talking scenes primarily feel very action packed in a lot of ways, I and mean, I think this would make a great movie. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I completely agree, especially the first two chapters, like, because we're bam, right in the action, and that's very much a movie TV show thing to do, which yeah. is cut out all the exposition for most of it, and yeah, just put us right in there to interest the viewer. Yeah, so back to Teen Will. Teen Will <laughs> is put in some sword match with his friend uh, Garen de Leon. Jacques, it turns out, is Garen's uncle and is a dick. Yeah, yeah, he's a, a right a-hole. Like, it's just, he, they really push that uh, opinion of him straight up. In the, like, with the, what is it, like, the second chapter? He was like, a, you know, boys respond better to the whip than the word. And it's basically like, oh, okay, yeah. So he basically abuses uh, Garen at any point that he's disappointed in him. Cool, cool great. great, I guess. <laughs> it's one of those things also that, on the one hand... Okay, yeah, I'm sure that sort of thing, I mean, that sort of thing obviously happened, but it also feels very much like it's playing into another big stereotype of the Middle Ages that basically people didn't actually love their children. And I mean, mm-hmm, Jack isn't mm-hmm. actually his father, he's his uncle, but still, he's like his guardian, it seems like. And that's very much this, I this at this point, discredited stereotype about the medieval world that basically because, you know, your kids could die at any minute, you didn't bother loving them. Yeah, you'd think it would be the opposite, like... Correct me if I'm wrong, like, wouldn't you want to hold them closer and tell them how much you love them? And it's not like love for your children is a modern thing. No, (laughs) yeah, and if you actually look at the sources, there are clearly many people who are very loving parents, including, of course, one of the expressions of that is that there are very poignant and powerful laments that people write when their children die. Mm -hmm. It's, as I said, this very much discredited stereotype about the medieval world. And I feel like that's kind of what they're going for with Jacques, that, of course, medieval, I guess, I don't know, maybe men in particular couldn't possibly love their children. Yeah, there's a a bit of issues with that, with um, how she portrayed, uh, well, characters in general, one, but men also, is that everyone's kind of Mm two-dimensional the men characters can't show emotion at all and if they do have them it's it's very you know wrong and oh my god i shouldn't be showing people this and and embarrassing for them and then on the other hand the the female characters are also very two-dimensional for reasons we'll get into later we haven't seen any women there might not be any women in the world yeah I know, we'll talk about that, don't worry about it, but <laughs> it's, it's yeah, it's very two-dimensional at this point, and I know we're only four chapters in, but you kind of want a little bit more, Yeah, you kind of want, 
you know, some sort of depth instead of being like, Jock is uh, cruel and Owen is nice. You know, you kind of want more than that. Yeah. And the issue I would like to also add with men in particular in this book uh, being hesitant or uncomfortable showing emotions is also a very modern form of toxic masculinity. Because mm-hmm. if you read medieval yes. texts, like men are very emotional and and affectionate physically and verbally, especially with other men. Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. And and Robin has seemed to have disregarded that whole portion of history. Yeah, you know, especially in this time, from what I gather, you know, you could be free with your emotions with other men, yeah. and it was fine. Exactly. And I feel like, yeah, you're. Yeah, that you've, I mean, you've already stated it very well, but that it's such a modern stereotype for men to have to withhold and be strong at all times and, you know, never access that portion of their personalities. Yeah, it just very much feels again, like this is another moment where you didn't read any books, Robin Young, about social history. Yeah, yeah. Will also kind of hints at the fact that his father is mad at him for something, but we don't quite know for what and won't talk to him. And then has this, like, he sometimes wondered if it was worse to have an uncle that mistreated you or a father who wouldn't speak to you at all. And it's like, oh, well, like, stop whining. Like, your buddy just, like, got, like, savagely beaten by his uncle. Like, chill the fuck out. I know. I was so mad when I read that because I'm like, your friend has just been beaten and you're wondering about yourself. You know, how about you be there for your friend that you can't help your circumstances you know, at all. But even if he could, what is he going to do? Will's notoriously a terrible person. <laughs> but it's exactly. just, it, but it's just like, he's just like, oh, is it? He's just thinking about himself in that moment. And that just made me really mad. Yeah. We then start to get more of the kind of big picture stuff with the Templars. Jacques is, uh, has this mysterious meeting with this person, Hassan, and they talk about this book of the grail that got stolen We still don't know that much about it, but we learn that it's a book that would look like your standard grail romance to most people, but that in reality it has all of this unorthodox stuff uh, about sacrificial rites and the desecration of the cross. And they're worried this has been stolen on purpose to discredit the Templars. And in particular, they refer to there's this group, the Brethren or the Anima Templi, and we don't know who they are, but that they seem to be particularly connected with this book. We also get to see some real people King Henry III of England and his son Edward, who are about to go to this private meeting with the Knights Templar to deal with Henry's debt to them. And Will and Garen are there, and uh, they see that the Templars request the crown jewels as collateral, and Henry's like, nah, we're, we're not doing that. Oh, he's, yeah, in that in that conversation, he is so insulted that they would dare ask. And it's like, you got to repay it in some way. Like, it's... It, I mean, they're not asking for money for no reason. They want it for the Crusades and whatever. Right. And also Henry owes them money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just, I, I would like to know more about that as well. Like, how did that come about? That I assume that he borrowed, borrowed the money from the Templars for his former Crusades, but we're never really told about that. It's just King Henry owes a debt. And kings never have enough money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is that Was that a thing of the time where they just borrowed from institutions? Oh, yeah. Or... For, institutions for the crusades individuals yeah. for the crusades for basic maintenance of their own kingdoms like kings are borrowing money yeah. constantly yeah yeah which is a thing that i'll yeah i'll talk more about the details about that in the next section mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so you go back to baybars who they fought the mongols again and 
I guess they're outside of Aleppo, and Baybar sends a soldier to the household where he once served as a slave, and it turns out that the household is empty, but it like had once been owned by a Western knight. So again, kind of implied that probably that was his former master at some point. Oh, and he also like just brutally murders a priest at some point. For, like, yeah, yeah. <sighs> I can't remember the circumstances around that. I think he just finds a priest in a church just a just a christian priest yeah. i guess and just is just like you're dead because you're christian yeah. like it's just that's just how it goes yeah. <laughs> yes we got more of that and we have more of the kind of lead up to him talking about the possibility of an assassination attempt and it turns out also that katuz is sort of onto him and is making plans to get rid of Babars. we'll see what happens that, that really kind of comes out of the blue as well yeah. because it's just like Kutz knows that Baybars is unhappy about not getting the governorship and then he's just like it, it, I like how much like intuition Kutz had about this mm-hmm. but it seems to have come around really dramatically when he's like he was very unhappy I bet he's trying to go and uh, try to kill me I've got to kill him first and yes it's very much a, a movie plot right <laughs> And I guess there's been unrest between Baybars and Kutz for a while, even though we learn later on that Baybars killed the former sultan to put Kutz into the sultan position. Right. But I would have liked to have seen more of that. Like, we're kind of just thrown into this end of a conflict with those two. A little bit more background would have been nice, I suppose. Yeah, and it does seem in a lot of ways also, like, her focus is more on the Western context. Yeah, yeah. it's And yeah, I wanted to hear more about the... The Egypt side of it, the promised land side of it, like there's not that much there. Yeah, and especially because this is a really interesting history in this period. I mean, we also have these kind of references to the Mongols, and that's never really explained as like exactly who they are and where they came from and how Muslim forces are dealing with the fact that they're now facing both the Christians and the Mongols. Like it's just... I yeah I wish that there was a little bit more with that. Yeah, I think that is the this chapter is the last time we even hear about the Mongols. I could be wrong. Yes, I think so. But I think yeah, I think these two battles, uh, the one in the first chapter and this one, this is just all the reference we get. So and and the implication is they're like this kind of animalistic army, you know, native to the land, things like that. But like, there's not that much uh, information about them, and it's just like, oh, they're just a force that we're fighting. Like they're just a pure plot device, basically. Yeah, exactly. Jacques and Garen, meanwhile, are talking before like this tournament that they're supposed to be fighting in. And uh, Jacques's like, I'm only hard on you because, like, you're so important and I want to see you succeed. Like, okay. <laughs> it's, it's, okay, Jacques, it's like, there's no excuse for that, but all right. right. <laughs> Will then meets the first woman in the world, Elwyn. Oh my god, I was so excited to have a female I character. Know, right? I was just like, ah! <laughs> Elwyn is this weird, like, medieval manic pixie dream girl, basically. She Mm -hmm. is very, very modern in everything about the way that she talks about, like, herself and how she wants to live her life. And she also really seems like she's there almost entirely to, I don't know, make Will be less of an asshole, but she doesn't even, like, succeed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She's totally, like, she's put in there to be his mentor and, like, help him grow up, basically. And I really resent that... Robin wrote her that way especially when she talks further on about getting married yeah and she has very liberal opinions about it and I was like whoa like wouldn't your experience of the time 
inform you that yes like that is a thing that women are to do like go and get married make babies you know and and that kind of thing and she yeah she had a a lot of modern opinions about that and I was like uh okay yep (laughs) all right not that there aren't any women who don't get married, but it always drives me nuts the extent to which medieval people seem deeply in shock at just basic medieval norms and the fact that they exist. Like, I could have to have an arranged marriage. Yeah, yeah. And that's the, that was, it, she was so shocked. She was like, me, get married? No, I don't want to do that. And I'm like, girl, that is not an option for right, you. Right, like you are in a <laughs> like, society where the vast majority of women either get married or become nuns. So, and yeah, you yeah. Like it's like, those are your nuns. two choices. So yeah, it's frustrating. But I was so happy to have a female character, finally. Like, we just get to hear weird, uh, about Will and his complaining a bunch. And it's just like, I'm done with you. Like, let's move this along. <laughs> yeah, I wish, I wish they'd given her more to do. And I wish she'd become more of a central character than she actually is. But it is nice to finally have a woman, even if she's really there as Will's as a kind of mentor and love interest, as we'll see. Yeah. Will also then enters Owen's room to write a letter and then finds these kind of, these uh, kind of references to the brethren and is intrigued. And uh, then Henry and Edward are like fussing about the crown jewels situation still basically. And Edward thinks that he can solve this problem. Henry, meanwhile, however, has basically kind of agreed to the crown jewels thing. And Will is one of the people who's going to go to Paris and escort the crown jewels because they're going to be kept at the Templar headquarters in Paris. Meanwhile, Garen is sought out by this uh, creepy dude named Rook, who then takes him to the meeting with Prince Edward, who tells him that he's going to steal the crown jewels back. And if Garen helps him out, then he'll restore his family name and make him rich and all that good stuff. So Garen agrees because he also kind of sucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our two main um, male leads, Garen and Will, they're not great. They're not great. They're really not. But Edward does kind of like threaten him with his um, mother's life. Like he says, if you don't agree to my terms, then I'm going to go to your mother's house and you don't know what will happen and it's just like (sighs) really (laughs) yeah and it's one of those things again where women are either not there or they're there essentially as motivations for men and so this is a woman that we never see i'm not even sure we know what her actual name is no i don't think we get her name i think it's just garen's mother she's only mentioned like once or twice maybe yeah and yeah we we do uh, yeah i don't believe we get her name and it's only the and she only appears to have the basically threat of her rape and murder be used as a motivating force for garen to betray all of his friends mm-hmm. so that's frustrating especially in a book written by a woman <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and this is the this is my sticking point as well as we'll experience this as we go forward through the book. But I would expect this from so many uh, male writers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I feel like I mean we can talk about this later. But I feel like uh, Robin wrote these female characters without much agency and without much you know like lives. Like we don't really get a peek into what their lives are like. Right. They're just yeah. They're just there to be the plot device and the motivation. And that's really disappointing. Right. And all we know about Elwyn is her whole thing that she doesn't want to get married, basically. Yeah, yeah. They have this tournament, uh, uh, Will wins, and uh, Jacques beats Garen for losing because 
that's nice. They talk more. And yeah, this is also where I guess Owen and Elwyn have this conversation. And she's like, I will never get married. Like, how could you possibly expect that I would get married? What? Yeah, yeah. She's so, yeah, she's so surprised about it. And Owen's like, uh, nah, dude, like, this is what's going to happen. Yeah. Sorry, hon. They go to Paris and uh, are supposed to be accompanying the crown jewels. Hassan, the still kind of mystery man, is also on the boat. And uh, Will's kind of following him, which ends up kind of, at for the time being, basically not really going anywhere. No, it was it was a cliffhanger for the ch- end of the chapter. And then the resolution is just so disappointing. It's just like, oh, okay, sure. But Hassan was someone that was mentioned earlier in the book. And he's kind of m- mysterious because everyone's so shocked that, like, a brown person could be... Um, visiting Owen and it's I I was just like what do you mean yeah they have to have people there that are not white like it's not it can't be that and like everybody is shocked when he's walking down the street when he's going up into Owen's office or whatever and they're just like oh my god who was that person you know he has to keep a hood so deep over his face so he's not seen I was just like calm down guys like you like there's no way that this section of the world is pure Caucasian. No, There's no possible way. Absolutely not. And, you know, obviously medieval England and France were certainly less diverse than, say, New York right now. But they weren't entirely white. There certainly would have been some people of color who were present. And at the very least, people would have known they existed. It wouldn't have been that shocking and horrifying to see a brown person walking the street in the way that's implied here. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's very much in the text. It's not like we're reading into it. It's very much the characters are horrified and kind of like kind of like steer your children away. Yeah. In that kind of and it's like calm down. It's okay. Chill. <laughs> and it very much emphasizes his constant vulnerability to attack and suspicion just by virtue of him being a brown person. And that, I think, is really vastly exaggerated in this context. Yeah, and and, and I mean, it only really sets up a, po- a plot point later on, right. and I think that's precisely where right. she was kind of like, we got to emphasize this every chance we get. I mean, anytime we meet Hassan, which is a lot, yeah. actually, it's always emphasized that he could die at any moment, someone could attack him, You know, he could just go mysteriously missing. You know, Owen tells him to be careful when scouting. You know, everyone is very, very aware of it. And it's not that I don't, I don't believe that that is, could have been the case uh, in that time period, but it's just so heavily emphasized that it's like, okay, I get where you're going, Robin. Like you're gone. This is for later on. I see. Right. But Yeah, it is frustrating and it really does play into another big stereotype about the Middle Ages, that the Middle Ages was this all-white universe, and it's not true. And the use of the one brown character, or the one brown character who is present in Europe in this way, is frustrating to me for that reason. Yeah, it does really feel like he's the one brown character on the continent. Like, that is how they're framing it. Yeah, which, no. Bybars and uh, learns about the fact that Kutuz is planning to assassinate him from his friend Kalawan. And that plot, by the way, is just crawling the assassination plot. I know. It takes so long to get anywhere. Yeah. And this is, yeah, this is where it really drags on a bit. Yeah. 
And so that entire chapter is just, he like finds out, like he finds out that Kuchus is planning to assassinate him. And that's the only thing I know, thing I couldn't happens. believe it was a whole chapter on that. It yeah. was just Kalawan visits him, tells him of the plan. He gets Kalawan to pay off the governors of uh, Kutz to, so he will have support when he takes the Sultan ship and that's it. There's a whole chapter. And I was like, wow. Okay. <laughs> nothing else? There's wicked nothing? Yeah. Okay. The next two chapters, though, we get big drama. So on the ship, uh, Will finds out that Elwyn has stowed away. And uh, then very shortly after, there's a chest and it falls into the water and they're trying to retrieve it. And then while they're busy with that, a bunch of masked men in robes attack them and uh, kill a bunch of people, including Owen and Jacques. Yes, it was very dramatic. And I had to kind of read this chapter a couple of times uh, because I couldn't really figure out the placement of people and like yeah. what was really happening. Because they, they mentioned that the, the chest falls into the water and they're trying to retrieve it and there's big hubbub about, you know. And at the, at the time, I must have skipped over the fact that the jewel... The, the, and I am probably wrong on this again. Were the jewels in that chest? I think at least some of them were. Okay, yeah, because I was confused about that plot point. I think it wasn't all of them, but I think maybe the jewels were divided between a few chests and that was one of them. I mean, I can see that. That's a smart thing to do instead yeah. of just keeping it in the one. Yeah. But yeah, they, they bring a chest out from the cabin on the ship um, after the fight is over and it mentions that the crown jewels are in there and I was like, wait, what? Right. Like, I thought they were in the water. Wasn't that the whole thing that they were rolling along the dock and people were trying to retrieve them and that is at the point where they got attacked. Right. And they were, like, playing tug-of-war with this chest basically between the enemies and then the uh like will's company yeah so yeah there's there's like a lot <laughs> yeah yeah well at the start of the chapter as well we had that resolution with hazan and will right where will was at the end of the previous well the the chapter 10 uh, will was following hazan thinking he's doing something nefarious and the start of the 12th chapter is hazan you know finding will and we're finding out that he's following him and confronting him. And he's like, I'm just going to go buy food. Like, what is your deal? Right. Why are you following me? What are you doing? And then shortly after that is when the chest falls in the water and that all goes on. But that fight sequence, I really did like, even though it was a touch confusing because there are a lot of emotions in there from yeah. Owen when he sees his niece. And that's the point where he lets his guard down and is killed because of it. Right. And I wasn't expecting Garen to be as upset about losing uh, Jacques as he was. Like, but then... Right, because Jacques is terrible. Like, we only know that Jacques was beating Garen daily for faults that may may or may not have been within his control. We don't really get much more than that. We know he's his uncle, so we have that connection there, but there's nothing more than that, really. They have one good conversation that we see, which is after the tournament that Garen loses, but it, it doesn't really inform us on the relationship that much. Yeah. And so to have Garen so emotional later on about his death, that he caused his, his uncle's death, like, it, it was really jarring for me. Yeah, it just doesn't, it just doesn't make sense that he cares that much. Yeah, I don't, I just, I don't know if it's kind of like that trauma bonding that Jacques right. had with Garen in like kind of came into play there. But yeah, it was very bizarre for me for him to, and he is so much more upset about it than Will is about Owen dying. Or at least Will, Will I think is upset, but Will's like bad at emotions, like very bad at emotions. Well, both of them are really. Yeah. 
is later on we'll, we'll see what happens when they kind of uh, talk about what happened and and that but yeah it was it was very interesting to to read that sequence where there's a lot of things happening people are fighting owen sees his niece elwyn who had stowed away on in the in the boat presumably to and i think she might state this outright later to uh escape being sent to bath and marry somebody some random person right and yeah but also garen garen and and will were also oblivious to the fact that she was on board so that's another thing they tackle in that where garen defends her from being attacked and that's when all that when Owen goes down. Right. That's the other very frustrating thing about her is that again she's like very much a plot device in this scene. Yes. Yeah. She was. Yeah. She frustrated me a lot in this scene because it's like she's. I don't know. I don't know. It's just yeah. Her her character in general is frustrating because she was only put there to like scream really loudly and then Owen turns around, sees her, and then he's stabbed in the chest. Like she's there to be a damsel in distress, basically. And it's like she could have just not been there. <laughs> honestly yeah and she could have been replaced by literally anybody else like there's no there's no reason for his niece in particular to be there and that's what frustrates me about uh robin's character development of elowen is that she could be replaced by anybody yeah and it wouldn't matter it wouldn't change the plot at all yeah it's very irritating meanwhile bybars finally kills kachus and it's made sultan (laughs) I was so happy in that chapter because stuff happened. Things moved along. Yes. And yeah, it was just like, we have a resolution. Something has happened. Then we go back to Europe where Will is basically being a sullen dick. And Garen is also kind of being a sullen dick. It's just like a sullen dick fest all around. Yeah. Will is talking to Robert who... To be honest, I'd completely forgotten existed until I was looking over notes. I do not remember who this character is. Yeah, he's he's meant he's here while they're in Paris, and then he's with them later on. But there's yeah, they don't have that much impact and are only there to kind of for Will to tell his backstory. Well, Robert is there, and then um, Hughes, which is his other, I guess, roommate, is there to tell him something dramatic later. Right. And that's really the only purpose that they serve. Yeah. Specifically, we learn that Will's big dramatic secret is that he killed his sister by accident. Yeah. Quote, unquote, by accident. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So Will, Will just straight up murdered his sister, and then I guess, like, felt bad about it and his dad hates him now because of it which fair yeah like he's like he's like he's very torn up about this obviously and uh, but he's more torn up about the fact not that the fact that he killed his sister but that his dad doesn't like him now because of it and it's like yeah like that was his child that was your sibling like there's gonna like you think there's not gonna be friction you don't think there's gonna be tension or anything yeah. to do with that. Especially the way that she died. He killed her basically because she was annoying him. Yeah. And then he, when he was bringing her body back to the house, he lied to his father about how it happened and then confessed later on. Right. So obviously that's going to bring tension as well because it's like you're not honest about what happened in the first place. Yeah. You know, apart from killing your sibling. So it's, 
yeah, he's he's a very frustrating character, and he's like, why does this happen to me? This is all all these bad things that I totally didn't cause are happening to me, and it's like, well, hon, you need to look, sit down, and look at your life and your decisions and the consequences, and just take those consequences, right? And it's also like the fact that he feels so much worse about his father being mad at him than he does about the fact that he killed his sister. That might be why his father is so upset with him. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Like, it really shows Will as a person. Like, he doesn't care about anything unless it personally affects him. He couldn't give a crap about his sister dying, only that the fact that his father thinks less of him because of it. Right. This is also another moment where I find it so frustrating that you have this miscellaneous dead woman who is there entirely to create a conflict that doesn't even really matter to the plot between Will and his father. Yeah, yeah, we only get snippets of the reasoning why Will uh, believes his father is angry at him, and it's mostly because his father, James, doesn't write him as much. And James, we find out, is in the Holy Land and doesn't write to him as much, and he's going, that... Will's thinking that silence means hatred and it's like maybe reach out to your dad I feel like maybe the dude's busy yeah like he's look dude he's busy he's doing stuff he's fighting the good fight in the holy land like I don't I'm not sure what he wants it's not like texting now you literally have to send the letter across continents to get to each other yeah I find all of that just very irritating especially because I feel like it would be the exact same book without this conflict between Will and his father. I feel yeah, like ultimately absolutely. it doesn't really matter. I guess maybe it makes sense that he and his father couldn't be like super, super close, but they could just be not super, super close and they haven't seen each other in a long time because he went off on crusade. This is what I mean about female characters being replaced by literally anything. It could have been his pet dog. Yes. You know, it could have been a pet or something and it would have the exact same consequence. Why are you killing these female characters when you do not need to? Yeah. And (laughs) And we have so little of them. We have so little female characters in this book. I would love to keep them all, you know? Like his, his mother barely gets a passing mention. We learn her name, which is a big thing. Right. But through flashbacks. But... There's no other mention of her, really, apart from being his mother. Yeah. Will then, because he's sullen and grumpy, goes into a chapel and steals some communion wine and gets drunk. And then gets caught like an idiot. And the priest who finds him, Everard, brings him to the to the visitor, to uh, one of the kind of upper uppers of the Templar order, initially intending him, intending to expel him. And ultimately then basically decides that instead as punishment, he's going to basically take an extra year before he gets to become a full knight. And during that entire time, he's going to be Everard's apprentice. I don't know if that is punishment enough, you know, for defiling sacrament. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and, and just because they found out that Will is James Campbell's son, but it's just, it's like, and he does get whipped later for, you know, defiling the sacrament, but it's like, that's I don't know I don't know if that's punishment enough like I think expelling him from the order would have been a sound punishment yeah not extreme at all which is the way they frame it right or at least having some I don't know kind of heavier like act of penance that he would have to undergo yeah yeah and uh, and just tacking on a year for 
his um for him to get his mantle it's i was like that's i was expecting 10 years you know right like that's a evervard doesn't bring him to the visitor for like just getting drunk it's a a clear and i mean i don't know anything about sacrament or anything but it was such a clear violation of being a templar's apprentice right i mean it's that you know he took like he took the blood of christ and got drunk on it yeah yeah that's not cool like i feel like you get punished more heavily for that like i feel like altar boys in like 2019 get punished more heavily for that (laughs) yeah yeah there's probably no whipping involved but it's just like I I really think Will gets off so light and he bemoans so much of his uh, own failings and it's like, listen, you're a mess. Like, you need to get it together. Obviously, you know, it's not okay to get drunk on communion wine. Why are you there in the first place? Yeah. He's, I don't know. He just feels like this, like, white dude failing upwards. Yeah, and it was (laughs) at at this point when he got drunk and um, was caught and he was like, oh my god, what am I going to do? I was really not liking this character. Mm -mm. Like, I wasn't liking him before, but now I'm just like, you're the worst. I think I like Garen more than you. Garen, however, also sucks. Garen is confronted by Rook, who yells at him because he apparently, you know, because he participated in stopping the theft of the jewels, which was all organized by Edward. Garen then, I guess, to save his own skin and and his mother, because of course it's a woman in peril, he decides like, oh, I'm going to now betray my order and tell him about this thing called the Book of the Grail that I heard people talking about. That's a big deal. Rook then says, like, all right, we'll see what we can do. Like, you owe Edward a debt, and we're going to kill you. are going to probably, like, rape and murder your mother if you don't comply and do whatever we say. We also then find out a little bit, finally, about this Book of the Grail thing, because Everard and Hassan meet and try to and start to talk about who it is that might have stolen it. And we find out that Everard's actually the person who wrote it under the instruction of the leader, the former leader of this group, the Anima Templi, Armand. We also learn that Will's father, James, is the one who wrote that letter to Jacques that we saw earlier, and that he's clearly involved with this whole situation as well. Does that, like, I don't, I only know the Holy Grail from references through movies and TV, but does that track for the 13th century, for that's when it was written, and it just seems very convenient that um, Will's apprent- uh, Will's mentor is the one who wrote it. So this isn't a real thing. I mean, so there yeah, are... Yeah, no, I, I figured right. it wasn't. But, like, is this a thing that's made up for TVs and movies? Or is there reference to it in historical documents? No, it, there's... So there are grail romances, and that's one thing. And the stuff that's included in the book of the... Gra- this book of the grail, ostensibly... I'll get to the details of that, but I know where that's coming from. Mm-hmm. The book, however, is not anything that is real or exists. Okay, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a pure de- a plot device, which, um, given that it's fictional, I guess I'm okay with. <laughs> right. I mean, then the entire this entire concept of this like secret order within the Templars, the Brethren or the Anima Templi, that also is complete fabrication. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> seeing we see how it's run later on, and I was really hoping it was fake because <laughs> it's so <laughs> badly run, and it's the most ridiculous. Uh, like uh, just even the origin of the group is right. ridiculous to me right. and oh robin has a bit of imagination i'll give her that she's yes. creative yes i'll talk more about this in a bit but the early 2000s was really a moment where everybody wanted to think that the templars were like 
had these like interesting like heretical secrets. I mean, because this is a, like when was the Divi- when did the Da Vinci Code come out? That was about that was around that time. I think it was two thousand four, maybe. Yeah, so it's like pretty close in time to when the Da Vinci Code comes out, which also like has this whole like rigmarole about like the Templars are the secret society that are protecting like the Holy Grail and what the Holy Grail is is it's actually the secret of the bloodline of Jesus. Sorry, spoilers for the Da Vinci Code. Um, <laughs> if you haven't seen a fifteen-year-old movie, sorry. Right, a fifteen-year-old movie and a what twenty-year-old book. Yeah. Both are terrible, don't worry, you're not missing anything. But it's like, this was clearly a moment where everybody wanted to think that the Templars were like... way more interesting than in some yeah. ways they probably were. Yeah, it's it, it was very much... 2006 was a great time for conspiracies. Exactly. And everyone loved a conspiracy. Everyone loved the possibility of the Illuminati right. and, and really inserting all these conspiracies into historical events to be like, they predicted this in the future and they, they knew about this. And it's, yeah, it was very much of the time... And not in the way that conspiracies are kind of like talked about now. It was very much, I'm telling you something that is real. If you don't believe it, you're the idiot, you know. And yeah, I do believe that they um, inserted that Holy Grail stuff in to make the Templars more interesting because at its face... It's not really that interesting. Like it's the the some of the historical events are interesting, but yeah, they they really inserted the Holy Grail stuff into that story, into that time to kind of get people interested in in that time period. Right. So the closest I would say that you come to the Grail being something that matters is that this is indeed a period where a Grail romance would be the kind of thing that would be circulating we have a lot of texts that circulate from this period, which are Arthurian romances that deal with the search for the Holy Grail. There's not this big secretive connection to the Templars in particular. It's just a kind of aspect of vernacular literature that's kind of tying together this Arthurian mythology and basically like to some extent Christianizing it by emphasizing this Holy Grail aspect. Mm-hmm. It's all very silly. <laughs> We've got a time jump now, six years forward, where we finally meet James Campbell, Will's dad, who is hanging around at Zafat uh, and uh, is preparing to repel this attack from the Mamluks. And Baybars is sultan, and he's captured a bunch of Christians from the surrounding towns and is hanging around outside. We then go back to Will, who is now 18 years old. Wait, how is is it? Shouldn't he be older? Oh, yeah. I must have done the math wrong on that one because he was 14 and yeah so he must have been 20 now I swear no because I took it from the text I swear it says 18 but it also does I'm pretty sure say six years I I completely buy that they just screwed this up yeah like it would not surprise me I'm actually going through the books right now the last chapter was in 1260 AD and the next chapter is in 1266 AD so yeah I think Robin's done a little bit of math wrong there because it (laughs) definitely says that he's 18 in the text whoops (laughs) oh well (laughs) yeah well he's 18 or 20 or however old he is and Uh, you know in that in that in that area you know right he's he's a college kid now he's hanging with elwen who has been a lady in waiting to the queen of france they're doing this thing where he i think she's like blindfolds him and like feeds him things and he has to guess what they are and like then they make out so it's fine yeah yeah they do this sexy food game which we're not we don't know that it's supposed to be sexy at the start and we just think they're friends right and there's no we don't know that there's any romance there until they kiss 
And I was like, oh, okay. So I assumed there was going to be romance because I was assuming that was the only reason there was a woman in this book. Yeah, I was, I'm very optimistic. So I was holding out hope she would have agency. She would do things with her life outside of Will and his adventures, you know? So it's just, yeah, they do this game where she blindfolds Will and like, I think she like feeds him a lemon and feeds him a piece of an apple and you know their bodies get closer and closer together and they kiss and it's just like Whoa. all right again this would be this would be a solid scene in a movie yeah oh totally yeah. yeah you could i can see um them take just scripting it from what whatever's in this book you know cut out please cut out all those uh boring portions about you know the the lead up to the the assassination of the sultan but right a lot like of this that they could just could be like five minutes absolutely five minutes would be too long i think yeah <laughs> get it done in two right you know yeah like we need like we need like two conversations about this like assassination plot and then we need the assassination and then we're done and then we're done it's good absolutely will and elwen are like having this whole thing where will is being like a whiny fuck because he like wants to sleep with her but he also wants to be a templar i guess <sighs> this so he's so frustrating for this um because he's like oh i want to burn down with you but my mantle it's so important to me and like i get it but like just let her be free then just let like just be like i can't have a relationship yeah. stop stringing her uh, stringing her along you know she likes you and he's kind of like ambivalent towards her he's just like well it's a woman that's interested in me so i guess right like, and then it's also on her perspective, it's like, what happened with, like, you not wanting to get married? Like, now you suddenly, like, want to marry, like, this fucking guy? Yeah, and, and I don't remember who it has to be, Elowen, that brings up the uh, prospect of marriage. I believe it is. Like, she says, um, just ditch your mantle and marry me and we'll be happy and yada, yada, yada. Do it what? Yeah, exactly. What like, what are they here? going to do? It's not like... If he deserts the temple, that's such a big deal. Like, they would have to move across the continent in order to earn a living and, you know, have a house and even get married. It's just, like, very frustrating. It's also, like, I don't know, I find it irritating that he genuinely does not seem to have any thoughts for even, like, three damn seconds about anything religious at all. That he doesn't actually care about any vows from, like, a like religious chastity perspective it's solely like my mantle yeah what my father who doesn't talk to me wants me to do and this whole thing about him becoming a templar is to impress his dad yeah it's so and he talks about it i think it's a bit later he talks about showing up to safid where james is is at the moment and he's in his glorious white mantle and his father's so proud and forgives him for killing his sister he doesn't care about his dedication to the church or any of their principles or anything or else. Aims. Yeah, he has yeah. no morals or yeah. goals or anything else. And it's just like, I find it difficult to understand that that's your motivation to like impress your dad. If you think your dad hates you that much, you would have other motivations for joining the church. Or like do something else. <laughs> yeah, like he's... he's free to do something else like he like, didn't have like to do this night. yeah it's just i just i find that motivation very hard to believe yeah he's very frustrating he also is like a dick to simon because simon got a promotion 
And then he like finds a hospitaler, also a member of one of the other military orders, and then is like a dick to him for no good reason. Yeah, Will's a dick all around. Yeah. Honestly. He's just having he's just gone around being a dick to everybody. And they get into when he when he knocks into the hospitaler uh, hospitilla? I would say hospitaler. Hospital hospitaler? <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Um when he knocks into them him, he's looking for a fight, basically. Yeah. And um, he's only saved by this other Templar, which was, which was for me very contrived. Right. And it's just, it's yeah. It there's no like, it could have been anybody walking past. It didn't necessarily have to be a Templar, but it's kind of like this Templar Nicholas earns his trust in that moment for saving him right. well, from my ass whooping. Well, I guess as we'll find out, it is contrived. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. Meanwhile, Bybarth is making a plan to attack Svat at Dawn. They have this fight. Bybarth ultimately is defeated. and But he does offer the soldiers, the I, I guess he offers the soldiers who are locals uh, as opposed to Frank's uh, uh, unconditional amnesty if they surrender. See how that goes. Yeah, yeah. It's it's the, uh, yeah, the local soldiers that uh, the Franks had enlisted to, to defend the castle? The... The fortress, basically. Fortress, thank you. Yeah. Um, to, to, yeah. And he, uh, Baybars offers that. And that's t- so tempting for them. Like, I get it. Like, oh, yeah. he... He offers amnesty. You can walk away from this right now. You can leave what with whatever's on your back. Versus the very real pro- prospect that they will be killed. Yeah. For, I'm guessing, a, a war that they didn't want to fight in the first place. Oh, right. The experience of people who were local during the Crusades is a really interesting question because uh, there's pretty good reason to think that even the people who are Christians were honestly not that excited about this whole crusade situation yeah i can see that especially those who were born in that land like it's not like they had all traveled there from whatever white country they exactly think they're from you know like some people were they're like second or third generations i mean or like forever basically like there had just always been christians in that area they just like never like they never it's that they like they never left mm-hmm. like it's not like they just left or they like all left or converted when the muslims conquered the region which had previously been like a part of the roman empire at a point when the roman empire was unchristian and so they just like had always been there and muslim rule is fairly generous to people who are not Muslim. In fact, much more generous than Christian rule pretty much ever is to people who are not Christian. And they seem to have been mostly basically fine. And things are also then complicated by the fact that they are typically not the same kind of Christians as the Christians who are coming from Western Europe, who then don't necessarily like them or treat them as equals or feel good about them practicing Christianity in the way they want to practice Christianity and have been practicing Christianity for centuries because it's not the way they practice Christianity. So there's actually like a decent amount of like conflict and complication and it's very much not a simple like, oh, the Christians are on the side of the these incoming Christians and Muslims are on the side of Muslims and so on. Yeah, and all of this is lost in the text because in the book it's uh, written as though it's either you're Christian or you're Muslim and any Christians who live in the land have only been there for 
20 years maybe they they meet some people in a town later on i say meet generously more like bebars raises it but they the person says you know i've been here i was born here my parents were born here but that's the only reference we have to generations of christians being in that land yeah which i think that is just frustrating given that we know that there are Christians who, like, literally have been there since, I mean, that they probably could not, like, trace a, like, them coming from someplace else. Like, there are Christians yeah. who live there who whose probably ancestors had lived there before Christianity existed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, But Baybars is very determined just to kill every white person he sees. It doesn't matter how long they've been there, if they're native to the land, if they've come across. If you're a Christian, you're gone. Right. And that's the thing, too, is that, of course, like, their Christians are also not necessarily white. Yeah. They are Middle Eastern people. Like, there are a bunch of people in the Middle East, and some of them are Muslims, and some of them are Christians, and some of them are Jews, a group that, as far as we can tell in this book, don't totally exist. Oh, yeah. In a lot of ways, like, those Christians, Jews, and Muslims who are in and from the Middle East arguably have a more common in common with one another than any of them do with these Frankish Western Christians who are coming in on crusade. Yeah, yeah. And this is um, this is another problem I had is how does Baybars know who was Christian and who was not? He certainly would know who the Franks were, not even necessarily because of obvious ethnicity, but because they dress differently. Like, they dress like Western knights, basically. Mm, Yes, yes. They would be distinguished. For the native people who practice Christianity, the implication was that he just sought out everybody who was Christian and it didn't matter their ethnicity and just killed them. But how would you know? You know, it's just, it's... And unless they're volunteering the information, like, it's not that Yeah, which, obviously, you wouldn't. Right. (laughs) I guess that he thinks that if he just eradicates everybody who has anything to do with Christianity in the land, that it will just disappear from the land. And it's kind of like, there's roots there. Yeah. I mean, I think Baybars needs to talk to a therapist, honestly. He has some issues. Yes, or well, at least Robin Young's Baybars has some issues. Yes. Everard, back in Paris, is meeting with some knights. The visitor asks these, this group to seek out and arrest this troubadour who's hanging out for heresy against the church when he comes to Paris. And Everard figures out at some point that the troubadour has this book of the Grail and is doing this whole like performance piece based on the book of the Grail, which the other knights don't put together because they're not part of the Anima Templi crowds. So they don't know what that is. Yeah, they, all they know is that it's a heretic book. Yeah. Everard tells Hassan about this. Uh, Hassan is planning, I guess, to just, like, assassinate the troubadour. Yeah, he talks about scouting him out and catching him between whatever town he was last sighted in and Paris. Which, I mean, ultimately doesn't happen. No. And I forget the reasons why Hassan failed in that. I think that uh, the troubadour knew who was being followed and uh, went somewhere else. What was, like, holed up by friends or something. But yeah, Hassan's basically sent out to assassinate him and take the the Book of the Grail by Everard. So Will then continues to be a grumpy dick. He runs into Garen and is a grumpy dick to him. And then he goes to talk to Everard and is a grumpy dick to him. And Everard then calls him out for being an asshole. Yeah, thank God. Like, I was like, someone has to do it. Yeah. Elwyn is obviously being too nice and is too caught up in her feelings to do this. And for such a liberal character that Elwyn is, you'd think that she'd be like, cut the shit. Yeah. 
<laughs> you know, like just be like, uh, like anything, anything. But she's always just like nice and just is offering him a way out. Yeah. Then back in spot, the Templars and the other Franks are talking with the local soldiers. The local soldiers want to surrender because you can blame them. James is trying to convince them not to. They are like, no. And they take off. Bybars gives terms to the Franks and tells them that they can surrender and go to Accra. But basically, I guess because James knows Arabic, he overhears what the real plan is, which is murder everybody, which is what happens at some point. He basically says, like, if you convert to Islam, then you'll be good. And James says, nah, and they all get beheaded. Yeah, yeah, that was, I was very, I was expecting something to come in and save James at the last minute, and I'm glad it didn't. Yeah. Because that was the kind of feeling that I was getting. Like, someone would be like, stop, he's important, or something like that. Right. So all that tension between Will and James was for naught. There was no reason to focus so much on... And it doesn't inform us anything about Will's character either, except that he's a dick. But he could be a dick without having tension with his dad and having murdered his sister. So we went through all of that emotional, I guess, turmoil and uh, about their relationship and maybe Will will go see his dad and they'll resolve things and, and then that it doesn't come to pass. Which I'm kind of glad about. Yeah, I agree that I'm glad that there wasn't this whole, like, dramatic, heartfelt reconciliation forced in. But it also kind of makes it feel like all of the dramatic tension about Will and his dad and the killing off of the sister was a total waste of time and women's lives. Yeah, yeah, it was a total, like, red herring. Like, it wasn't necessary yeah and it's not like it was only one or two chapters that will discusses his relationship with his father it's almost every chapter and that's his motivation for everything he does i feel like the book would have been basically ultimately the same if he had had a perfectly fine relationship with his father and just hadn't talked to him in a while because he was in the holy land yeah yeah i absolutely agree i i kind of wish they'd just done that yeah <laughs> me too honestly garen's having sex with some woman It turns out that she's a prostitute and runs a brothel, and that's her situation. And that's basically all the information that we get of her. We also get that, like, but really, her dream is to do something with herbs. Yes, that's right. She has that, like, like that potion making desk in her room, and that's her. That's her, like, side hustle. Right. And, okay, I actually li- I like that she has a side hustle because I feel like a lot of women, like lower socioeconomic status women, probably did like work multiple jobs. I do, however, always find it somewhat frustrating that there is this weird insistence that the only job women had in the Middle Ages are pros- is prostitution. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. not that there weren't prostitutes and not that sex work isn't work, but there's also like other kinds of work that women did and got paid for. And I don't understand yeah. why every single like working woman in medieval media has to be a prostitute yeah it's either you're married with a husband or you're a prostitute and there's no like or a nun yeah yeah and there's yeah there's no like there was so many other jobs for women to do that are never mentioned like who's making all your clothes who are the brewers they're actually in this period like all women i agree with you that media kind of like generalizes it so much when you're either one of two things or one of three things yeah a nun a prostitute or a married woman with children yeah 
he also is a dick to her because of course he is and it's all like you shouldn't see other men and she's like this is my fucking job yeah i was (laughs) i was like what do you expect dude you're paying her for sex but you also wish that she wouldn't let other men pay for sex and because he has feelings and like what is your plan like are you going to financially support her dude who is also supposed to become a knight templar and not get married yeah and and they talk about how little money they make as apprentices in the first place because the only reason garen has money to pay this woman for sex is because of the money that rook gave him from prince edward for his part in the in the the failed stealing the throne uh stealing the crown jewels scheme he does mention that he's like his coin purse is getting uh, a bit low or 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 whatever and uh that's the only reason he can afford it so he he definitely cannot afford to support her in the business that she owns so he's terrible rook uh shows up it kind of turns out that i guess the plan is that edward and rook with the help of garen want to capture or want to get this book of the grail so that they can use it as a bargaining chip to get back the crown jewels because that's still like their thing because they can't just like fucking pay their debt yeah yeah they're just uh, yes they just need to steal it back to resolve question mark just so they have it like they still need to pay the debt back you would think the templars are not gonna go well don't resolve the crown jewels are missing like we don't know who took them. Oh, well. Like, <laughs> this right. debt's still going to be there. Right. Just the bargaining chip's not there anymore. Yeah, I mean, I guess, like, they could make the argument, like, you lost my collateral. I'm therefore not going to pay the debt back. But then what? Then, like, the next fucking day, your, like, wife is wearing that necklace that they know was in the, like, box that they had? Like, come on. Yeah. What's the plan here? Yeah, exactly. It, it's going to, like, he's going to have to wear the crown jewels at some point because he's the king. Mm-hmm. And he's and he's not actually supposed to give the crown jewels away in the first place. That was his argument. Yeah. That was King Henry's argument that, you know, it belongs to them and, you know, they need to wear it for these reasons and they should always have possession of them. Yeah, it's going to be totally obvious when he's just, like, wearing them and they're like, huh. Temples is like, hmm. hmm. I wonder where they went. I wonder how you got that. Yeah. Elwyn and Will are talking and Elwyn is like saving up money and wants to like buy them money to go and go to the Holy Land next year and like Will's a dick about it because of course he is. Yeah, he's, his, his reasoning was that he doesn't want to buy his way into the Holy Land. He wants to earn it, which like he's not in any position to earn anything being so awful, but he like free trip bro like what are you doing she's offering to pay to go see you can go and travel with her to the promised land and also get your mantle at a later date and then earn it that way right i mean but it's also like god forbid you take anything from a woman yeah yeah and yeah it's just that's that was the underlying subtext wasn't it that he was just like i don't want anything from you i need to earn it myself you know, but like you take just... it from a man, like come the fuck on. Yeah, exactly, and he does later on. Yeah, <laughs> I hate him. I know he's terrible. He's awful. We also find out that Hassan has failed in getting this book, and so Everard then reaches out to Elwyn and uh, basically like comes up with this whole thing that like she should go and get the book from the troubadour. Meanwhile, Rook goes and tells Garen that he needs to go and get the book from the troubadour. Elwyn has been promised by Everard that he'll finally let Will undergo his initiation and become a Templar if she steals the book. 
So uh, she basically hits on this troubadour dude, Pierre, who invites her up to his apartment to, quote, read poetry. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. There's a lot of, like, complicated, like, maneuvering with a blanket, but basically she manages to, like, take the book and sneak out. Yeah, I totally forgot about that part with the blanket because he's she has the book on her, but she's covering it with the blanket, and previously she'd been drenched in rain, which is why he's like, come back to my place to read poetry and and she's like i need to keep the blanket i'll return two to you that like i'll send you twice as many as and double as comfortable or whatever and uh and he's like yeah okay but i totally forgot about that part because the the maneuvering was so funny to me in that moment that also i feel like would be a really cinematic moment her like maneuvering with like the blanket and also to like not have sex with this dude and stealing the book (laughs) yeah it was very funny to me that he didn't notice that she was like no 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 i need to keep the blanket it's uh comfortable and i need it like (laughs) he was not like something's going on you know he knows that people are after him he knows that people want the book he knows that people view it as heretic as a heretic and and they don't like it and he's being pursued and he's not clocking for a second that she might be there to take the book right I guess he was thinking with a different head or something, but, you know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which, I mean, you know, she sneaks out and then the Dominicans come in to arrest him for heresy and he doesn't have the book and and he's like, oh, there is this like hot lady who is in here and like gives them the fake name that Elwin gave them. She gets the book back to Hassan and then this is where we get the like payoff of our like constant, this person is brown and so everyone's trying to murder them for no reason constantly and that he gets just murdered by some dudes because he's brown and then left on the side of the road and then they find his body and are like, fuck it, we'll talk o- toss him in the leper's graveyard. I guess also because he's brown. Yeah, yeah, they were like, well, we don't know what to do with this brown person. We can't put him in the Christian graveyard. That would be too weird. And I was like, what are you talking about? They can't all just be white people in there. What are you, what, like, yeah. Christian doesn't mean white. I don't understand. <laughs> and they, they were acting like it's it would it would be so, you know, dirty and and. and you know they can't put a brown person in there and it's just like (sighs) and it's also frustrating because like okay so the the person who's the king of france at this time louis the ninth actually like brings back converts to france Mm. after he goes on crusade and then like settles them in like french villages it seems like basically like you know not that it was like always 100 percent easy but also they weren't just getting like murdered for walking down the street and they weren't even living in Paris. They were living in, like, little French villages in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. Where they, like, the, probably the weren't actually Hass- brown people. <laughs> the, the, the way that Hassan is killed is very frustrating for me. He's just walking down the street and these, like, punks just, like, get up and they're like, oh, my relatives were killed by a brown person, so you must pay. Yeah, and it's just so random and so frustrating. Also, like, he's the only character who's a person of color who's not like kind of evil yeah yeah exactly it was so two-dimensional in that way i liked hassan the most i think out of all the characters yeah because he had at least some sort of depth to him but we didn't really get that much we got a little bit of his backstory as to how he became uh, how he came into owen's employee but 
I mean, I really enjoyed his character, but we saw so little of him, which is interesting to me that I have that attachment, (laughs) which may be why I was so mad when he was killed just for no good, no goddamn reason. Like, yeah, it's frustrating. And I wish they had not killed him off. Will talks to Elwyn about like this whole complicated thing about the book and Will confronts Everard who like tells Will what's going on. So that's nice. Yeah, thankfully. Kept in the dark for so long. Yeah. Then we have this Baybars chapter where nothing is really accomplished again because clearly she does not actually know what to do with this character. Yeah, yeah. And and they like talk politics and then his wife and son, neither of whom he seems to like very much, come in. And and that's it. That's like the end of the chapter. I think the whole chapter was just around, we need to introduce the son. Right. (laughs) Yeah, because there's a whole like plan that's going to involve the sun that we'll we'll get to. Yeah. So Everard then tells Will all of this like stuff that I guess we have not actually gotten in full as of yet, which is that there's this group within the Templars, the Brethren, and I guess the Brethren have this like secret mission, and that like I think we still don't actually get quite in full as of yet. Just that like they have a secret mission and they created this thing called the Book of the Grail. And they, like, don't think crusading is cool, I guess. I'm not sure on that. I know the mission we learn about in, like, the last couple of chapters of the book, I feel like. But, yeah, there's the... I never knew really where they stood about the crusades. I know they didn't, like, give money to Henry, to King Henry, but that was about all that we knew. I think at this point you're already starting to get some kind of hint that they don't think... a kind of religiously motivated conquest is necessarily like a good thing. Yeah, I think Everard mentioned that before when he oh, when he said previously that he thought it was um, yeah unnecessary to travel or spend that much money or sacrifice that many souls or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, that that hints that he's maybe not on board with these decisions. And it's like, okay, that's not like it's like the sole reason your fucking order exists, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> No kidding, right? And so they go and try to get the book, and Garen's sort of spying. Will and Everard go to the leper's graveyard and are trying to find, and they find Hassan's body and find the book. And then Nicholas de Navarre shows up, and he's not a Templar, he's a Hospitaller. What a cop. Plot twist. <laughs> and it turns out that he, I guess, is the one who is behind everything and stealing the book in the first place so that the Hospitallers could make the Templars look bad. He had he had some, like, evil villain um, monologue when he described his whole role in the theft and, like, how that all came about. And I was like, wow, okay. <laughs> you didn't have to divulge this much, I guess. Right. <laughs> but all we need to know is he's a bad dude and that's it. Yeah. Garen, meanwhile, is, like, a couple steps behind, I guess. And thinks Will has the book. He saw Elwyn and uh, Will talking uh, about the the book. That Elwyn, because the troubadour was arrested, she has guilt about uh, that arrest. And she tells Will about Everard's role in that. So that's when he goes to, Will goes to Everard's office and tells him that, that the book was taken and where it might be. Right. And then Garen interprets that as Elwyn gave will the book because of yeah. her agitation in that conversation just like her body language and stuff so he's like spying on them and when Everard and Will leave to go to the leper's graveyard Garen is in the horse stable and plans to follow them to get the book back um, but is knocked out by a mysterious person which I be- which I would assume is was Nicholas but did they ever actually tell us that that uh, Nicholas uh, knocked Garen out yeah. they, no they didn't they just said <laughs> he was knocked out 
and then Nicholas was following them. And so I just kind of like put that together, but it could have been anybody. It could, wait, was it Rook? It could have been Rook. I don't understand why Rook would have knocked him out as opposed to being like, hey, dude, tell me what's going on. Yeah, yeah. That's why I thought it was Nicholas. Yeah, because I think Rook knocked him out earlier in the book and that's what I'm confusing it with. Right. He just gets knocked out a lot. Whatever. Yeah, you know, you know, concussion, the concussions, whatever. (laughs) Yeah. So they're trying to figure out what to do. Will finds out about his dead dad. That's too bad. He's sad. Yeah. That news was delivered by Hughes, which was Robert's roommate, right? Yes. Yeah, and that's that's his whole role was being just a big mouth. Yes. So it turns out that the Hospitallers, including Nicholas, have gone to Accra. And so Everard's like, cool, we're going to go to Accra and initiates Will, finally. Yeah, they do that rushed ceremony. And I was like, how do people have time for this? Don't you have to schedule these things instead of just being like, ring the town bell and be like, get in this church. We're going to do this thing right now. It was, yeah. And then at the end of it, and this is what this surprised me, all the Templars came up and kissed Will on the lips as the end of the initiation. And I was like, whoa, this is awesome. Yeah, I mean, that's like, that's again, like the thing I was saying before about affection is that like that actually like, like kissing on the lips, like between men is a sign of friendship was not that out of the ordinary in a medieval context. Yeah. And I just, I honestly, I just loved reading it because I'm like yay they can show she can show that men have emotion and care for each other without being having to be all gruff and like withheld yeah except for Will because Will sucks yeah Will's a dick you know what are you gonna do yeah he you know gets initiated and is happy and then he talks to Elwyn and like says they're gonna get married but in secret so he can still like go to the holy land and like I don't know avenge his dad or whatever Ugh, it's so bullshit because it's like why waste her time why no one would know about this so wouldn't they try to marry her off in the meantime right and it's like wait I'm sorry you've just like been like hanging out as like the lady in waiting to the queen of france for like six years and nobody's like been like hey you want to get married yeah like i think the the turnover for handmaidens would be more and yeah the expectation is that to some extent like that's one of the reasons you want that kind of position is it actually makes you a better candidate for marriage because yeah. it like gives it's like oh like you're a good person to marry because you have this link to the royal household yeah or, or and like being introduced to people of a higher status while you're handmaiden to the queen right exactly like it's a good form of social mobility essentially and so it's like okay yeah. we're just like gonna chill and do that for a while like will's plan is we'll marry in secret i'll be i'm a templar i'll go over to the whole little land question mark then I'll come back and we'll be husband and wife somehow. Like there's like, <laughs> it's so flawed from the start. And I'm like, you're going to make her wait. It could be 10, 15 years you're over there. Yeah. It's just, I'm just like, he's not even, he doesn't even care about Elwyn. No. He, he realizes like after he's become a Templar that he does love her and he wants to get married and he doesn't want to be a Templar and blah, blah, blah. But it's like you've been to impress my dad my dad's dead whoops yeah yeah it's like you haven't thought about this previously like and it's not like he was gung-ho i'm gonna be a templar i'm gonna be perfect a plus student he was always just dicking around right and well but that's the problem too with the fact that we have this character whose sole motivation in life is like 
I want my daddy to like me. And it's just, that's a really flimsy motivation for this character. He's flimsy on its own, but it's like, then he doesn't really have a motivation because then he's just whisked off. Right. So then for a while, he's like, literally just like, all right, well, I guess I'm just lost. So I guess I'll just do what this dude Everard tells me because that's what I've been doing for the last six years, even though I don't actually give a shit. Yeah, yeah. And like, and Everard at a certain point gives him the choice to leave or to continue on as a Templar. It's like, why didn't you just leave? Yeah, he doesn't take the choice to leave and be with this woman that he pledges he loves so much. He's just like, nah, I'll just keep doing this. Right, it's, like, it's dude, cool. You're like, not into this. Just go. Yeah, yeah. He's just, he's just like, oh, I, I love you, but I kind of don't want to be here. <laughs> like, it's just, it's very strange for me the way they made this relationship. Yeah. Then in the continuation of how all of the men suck, mm-hmm. they have this whole plot. Rook and uh, Garen pass on to Will this message, allegedly from Elwyn, that Elwyn's waiting for him, like, in Adela's brothel. And so he's like, yeah. cool, we're gonna go bone in, like, a brothel. Yeah, he was very, he was very conflicted because he was uh, excited that this could happen, but then he's like, no, I'm a Templar, I need to be pure. You know, even though you just pledged to marry this woman right i feel like also he's like isn't this like a little weird like this particular location but like whatever i guess yeah like why does he go there he's so stupid (laughs) he's not like this is something strange maybe i should find her first he's like i'm just gonna go to this place yeah rook goes to like prep for the situation and rapes adela which Garen mm-hmm. is then like a dick about. Oh, such a dick. He blames her for being raped. Fault. Yeah, just it's so. He's. Oh, these male characters, I tell you, she couldn't have written more unlikable men. Yeah. And this is also the other thing is that, okay, so we have this woman, Adela, who we really know very little about her other than that, like, she's a prostitute, but her true calling is like herbs. Mm-hmm. And she, like, I don't know, I guess sort of enjoys fucking Garen. And that's like her entire character. And then, like, okay, so we have this woman. So I guess since we have a woman we sh- who, like, is lower status, we should, like, have her get raped now. Yeah, I think they use the fact that she owns a brothel and engages in sex, wor- sex works as justification for that. Exactly, yeah. It was like, well, you know, she does this for money. Why won't she do this for free under coercion? Like, it's just... Yeah. It, it really shows that 2006 opinion of sex work and sex workers. Absolutely, yeah. And it's just so frustrating that, like, she is... Like, she is a character that I feel like would have had potential mm-hmm. as, like, this woman who's like clearly like you know as i said i have like some amount of issue with the like choice that like okay we can only have working women if they're prostitutes but like still you know even if we like go beyond that like you know sex workers work and you know also has like side hustles because like it's hard to make a living and like so you have this character who i feel like could have been genuinely interesting as an example of like a working woman who is supporting herself a real thing that is true of some women in the medieval world And then you just have to, like, have her basically get victimized. Yeah, yeah. And it's total... uh, It's total crap because then Garen is such a baby about it and blames her for being raped. And it's just... He's just thinking about himself in that situation and he's viewing her as property in that moment that Rook took something away from him. And I'm like, why don't you comfort the girl that you presumably love? Yeah. Because that's the whole reason he didn't want her to see other men is because he loves her and he wants something of a future, I imagine. 
Yeah. Yeah, he's just, it's just, both of those characters are such dicks in this, <laughs> in, I was going to say in this section of the book, but I don't think it gets any better. <laughs> yep, it's going to get worse very shortly. Mm-hmm. Will shows up, basically they, like, Rook ties Will up, he tells Garen to kill Will, Garen doesn't want to kill Will, so he has Adela making, make, like, a sleeping potion so that he can, like, pretend, like, oh yeah, dude's dead. And Garen then, like, takes off and, like, tells Adela that he'll come back for her, which, like, sure, friend. Mm-hmm, hmm Elwyn then has, like, figured out this whole thing, and she shows up with Simon and a guard, and then Rook runs into Adela and just fucking murders her. Yeah, yeah, like, she's turning back into the room to take care of dead Will, and then he just, Rook drags her into a, like, a cupboard and just slits her throat and just kills her like and fucking I was like, why like what why is, is that the necessary point this other than to like we have two female characters essentially let's kill one it's so maddening because the only purpose it serves is to be motivation for garen later on when exactly. he learns of this exactly and that's exactly. it that's literally it it couldn't have been that rook beat her to a pulp or or anything like that it, you know motivation in general like this dude has been like manipulating and like threatening him for like yeah years yeah and it's not like motivation against the threat of rape and murder of his mother is enough it has to be have to straight up murder his love interest now and, like rape and murder his love it like yeah so frustrating like it's just such an irritating like use of fridging and of like using like the rape and murder of a woman as motivation for a man and it's mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. a plot line that we see far too much of that i am just so sick of and especially oh, given yeah. that she was such an underdeveloped character in the first place makes it even more frustrating absolutely so it's like the only reason you had this like manic pixie prostitute in the book in the first place was like for this i guess it does come back to the fact that robin young is a woman and i can't believe she wrote female characters this way having given a lived experience as a woman yeah i find it so disappointing like i would be less disappointed if a man had written this yeah because you expect it you expect male writers to not have any concept of what it's like to live your life as a woman or a non-man and really capitalize on the stereotypical actions of that yeah but yeah it really is just really frustrating to see a woman following those same tropes and then rook goes down after he kills adela goes down and tells garen oh no she's fine it's cool you don't need to check on him i check on her and garen's like all right just believes this guy that's been threatening him for years and years and you know, and he's just like, okay, I guess I believe you. Because Rook's like, oh, we've got to go now. You know, like, the guards are on our tail and they just ride off. And I was like, Karen, you're such an idiot. He's Why so would you believe anything dumb. this man says? So then Will, I guess, gets raped. Like, I guess there's just some prostitute who, like, comes up and sees an unconscious man and, like, assumes that he's there to have sex with her? So there was this whole convoluted uh, situation when, before Adela was killed, there was this, like, rough-and-tumble customer that she didn't want to deal with that night, and so she was getting one of her young, uh, new employees to, to go and see him instead of her. And during this... Which is kind of shitty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Garen put Will on the bed so that if anyone found him, um, they would think he was just drunk and sleeping. And so there's somehow this confusion when the new employee goes 
to visit the rough and tumble customer but ends up in will's room and just has sex with him it's like a weird shakespearean farce which doesn't make sense because i feel like if she found him drunk and asleep she would just not have sex with him and then be like yeah no we fucked give me some cash yeah exactly like if he's already drunk and passed out and he was fully passed out at that point that's how strong the sleeping potion was she would just be like all right free money like right you know it's like you don't (laughs) i don't know why she was having why she thought and how that even happened if he was if he was passed out so Whatever exactly happened, she was at least, like, on top of him and naked, I guess. Yeah. And so then Elwyn comes in and is upset and, like, takes off. Yeah, yeah. And, like, in the middle of this kind of, like, Will wakes up a bit and thinks it's Elwyn. Right. That's having sex with him. And he's like, oh, Elwyn. And then Elwyn comes in the room and he sees her and realizes it's not her and but is too like drugged to do anything and then elwyn freaks out and then has to be like taken out by her the guard that she was with he figures out what's happened and is very upset and uh, everard's like nah don't worry about that like do my thing of going to Accra instead and he's like yeah yeah he's like oh i need to see elwyn i need to explain i need to tell her what happened but I didn't know and I was drugged and I didn't know that woman and I was kidnapped there and all of this. And then everyone's like, no, nah, don't worry about it. We need to go find this guy. And he's like, okay. <laughs> then they're like, all right, there's like a whole thing. They're like trying to get to Accra. They're having a hard time getting to Accra. Meanwhile, like Nicholas is talking to his grandmaster and his grandmaster is like, yeah, this book on its own isn't really enough to, like, accuse the Templars of anything, so I'm just gonna, like, hide the book over here. So it's also, like, okay, so we spent, like, the entire, like, last, like, what, 300 pages at this point being worried about this book, and now this dude is like, yeah, we're not gonna really do anything with the book. (laughs) And Nicholas is like, what the fuck? (laughs) Like, I came all this way, I risked my life. Like, I killed people. All these years I've put into getting this book that I knew existed but couldn't find because, yeah, Nicholas was the one that paid the clerk to uh, take the book in the first, like the first chapter, paid the clerk to steal it. And then, like, people die. (laughs) And then he gets to the Grandmaster and he's like, yeah, well, this isn't really enough. Like, we need more than this. And Nicholas is like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Will is hanging out in Antioch. He sees Garen and is mad at him. Meanwhile, Baybar's army is also approaching Antioch and is, like, not on board with negotiating because he hates Christians. Then we find out this whole, like, thing that Simon has a thing for Will, Mm -hmm. which I have very mixed feelings about because it seems like a very, like, half-assed queer representation. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's not like you can cast your mind back to their their previous, like, conversations between Simon and Will and go, oh, okay, so I'm reading this differently now. It's the exact same. They're just friends that Simon harbors this secret crush for Will. Why? You can do so much better, Simon. I know, right? (laughs) Like, Simon, like, Simon's the one who fucking, like, got promoted by, like, actually just, like, not sucking. Yeah, Simon, I feel like, was a good, is a good dude and is good at his job and good at what he does and why he's wasting his time pining after will i do not understand right and also like i mean dude there are plenty of men who prefer men who are like joining celibate orders 
Like, you can find someone else, my friend. Yeah. Within the, the Templar faction, yeah. there's people there that are into what you're into. Yeah, like, I'm sure you can find another, like, nice gay Templar man. Yeah, exactly. Don't worry about Will, who's honestly garbage. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so they're, like, having this, like, awkward conversation, and, like, Will has, like, no idea what's going on, because of course he doesn't. The Mamluks then attack and reach Antioch, and they're fighting, and so basically, like, we just, like, have, like, a whole battle scene, and then kind of, like, in the middle of the battle scene, Simon tells Robert that actually he's in love with Will, and that he misled Elwyn about exactly what happened, so Elwyn would leave him. I mean, there's, there's nothing like shoehorned queer representation, I guess. Yep. Uh, yep. That's in there for no reason, and it also comes to nothing later on, so it's... Right. There's it's a lot like, of this book matter. that I'm like, yeah, I'm like, why is this here? I don't... I get, like, it's dramatic, because, like, at the time, like, um... Will and Garen were fighting against the Mamluks and it's and they fall under a horse and there's like a the view was obscured, like there was a dust cloud or something, and they're like, Oh my god, Will and Garen are dead and then that's when Simon confesses to Robert because he's like, No, he can't die, I love him and it's in this massive emotional action packed scene. But then Will and Garen are fine. And only one person, they only lose one person out of their group. Which is like amazing to me. I totally right. thought that like Garen was gonna die. Me too. And I wish he had, because he sucks. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I guess he doesn't, because then he, like, finally does something, because he's motivated by dead women. Will and Garen are, I guess, like, Garen's, like, forgotten about, like, his whole, like, secret job, and Will and Garen get deputized to go and steal the book back from the Hospitallers. So they do that, but then Rook shows up, and then Rook's like, ha ha, I murdered her girlfriend, and so Garen mm-hmm. kills him. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And then they get the book and run. And then Nicholas is like, the fuck? And then the Grand Master of the Spittlers is like, let's just not worry about it. It's so, that character to me is so bizarre. Because, like, he has evidence against the Templars, which I guess is what he wanted, I assume. Like, it's indicated that he put Nicholas up to stealing this book in the first place. And then he gets it and he's like, eh. I it's kind really, of like it was a hazing bother. prank. It's like kind of like he was hazing Nicholas because it was like, go do this impossible task that I know you cannot do. See you in 10 years. And he brings it to him and then he's like, oh shit, you actually did that. <laughs> I right. didn't actually mean I didn't actually mean it. And then the Grandmaster finds a dead mutilated body in his office and two people have come in to steal the book that Nicholas took so many pains to get. And then he's like, eh, just don't worry about it. Problem solved. Like, you know, I didn't want it in the first place. This is so much trouble. Yeah. He's like, just take the body away. And it's just like, they murdered somebody to get this book. You, you're not interested right. in the least about who they are. That's the other thing that's bizarre about this book is that I feel like there's just so many plot lines that have so little ultimate payoff. Absolutely. <sighs> Garen's obviously upset because his girlfriend is murdered, who, by the way, like, it's been, like, a couple of years. Has he, what, like, not, yeah. like, written to her and been like, oh, weird she didn't write back? Yeah, yeah, like, you okay. think someone would have taken over the brothel, like, whoever was next in line or the most senior person or whatever, and they would have been like, uh, sorry to tell you, About but... That. Yeah, exactly, like, they give the book to Everard, Everard burns the book, and Will's like, the fuck, we went to all this trouble to get this book. 
which like I do not blame him for. I was surprised that he did that too. I was like, wouldn't you want to keep it? But he's just like, nah, just get rid of it. I shouldn't have written it in the first place. And it's like, I mean, he's probably right. I actually approve of his pragmatism. Well, he like wrote it because like he had a thing, he had a crush on Armand, and Armand's like, you know, oh, that's right. Yes, that's and oh, that's right. I, yeah, <laughs> that was great to read about when right. he how he described the former was it guardian or the former leader of the brethren the, like, leader of the and... brethren yeah because the guardian is the like name for the random secular ruler who's just like your person who's like associated with the order and i think they say it was richard the lionheart oh that's right they do say that yes and uh sure. but the way that everard described armand was amazing and he totally had a crush on him and i was I was oh, like, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll cling to any kind of queer culture I could find in this Honestly, book. Honestly, that's better queer representation than like Simon's fucking crush on Will, to be honest. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then Everard finally tells Will that the main goal of the Brethren, this group within the Templars, is that they're going to unite the Muslims and Jews and Christians as one people. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. fucking what? Yeah. <laughs> like, best of luck, no one wants this. Like, literally no one. Like, you, like, seven people within the Knights Templar who allegedly are working for this are the only people who want this. Yeah, and it's just like, one, how are you going to do that? But two, why? Like, like are you going to abolish religion? Are you going to create, like, a syncretic religion, which clearly no one is going to be on board with? Like, what is your plan? And also, this is ridiculous. But I love how Everard told Will that he sent James over to the Promised Land to stop the war. And it's like, he's one person. Like, right? How is he going? how is he going to make so much of a difference and he had uh he has this person inside Baybar's camp that i don't know if we know about or uh, at this point that's influencing Baybar's for like to be like amenable to you know converging these religions and he's clearly not doing a very good job because dude is like around when he just like massacres a fuck ton of people <laughs> and he doesn't even say anything he's just like okay i guess like this is what we're doing like he's not like trying to talk him out of it this this person isn't trying to like influence baybars that much like he's more interested in influencing baybars son for future rule and i'm just like okay sure all right cause so i'll worry about this like dick kid that he's got yeah but who's also what like six or eight years old like like, he's not gonna come into rule for 10 years and especially like In a lot of monarchies, if you basically are in a situation where somebody is going to, like, become in charge when they're children, they're very possibly not going to be in charge and or alive for very long. Like, this is a consistent problem that happens. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so, like, this is, like, a real long con here. If he's like, cool, we're going to wait until this kid is like in his 20s and hope this influence situation really works out. And then I guess either like, what, are you waiting for Baybars to die of natural causes? Or are you going to kill him? Or like, what's the deal there? Exactly. And he's and, and this person who is um, Kalawun, I think, yeah. I believe is the, is the person. Yeah. And he's part of the Brethren and he's trying to influence this kid, which, spoiler alert, for the next book does not work. 
What's the kid's name? Baba's son. I have no idea what that child's name is because he's not a character. Uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, the child ends up being a piece of shit, which is not surprising at all. He is. But I'm like, come on, what are you doing? Like, this is this has been your long con the whole time, and you still failed at it. You've had 20 years with this kid and have not achieved anything. <laughs> the way the Brethren is run is so ridiculous but also fascinating to me yeah okay so speaking of people being dumb everyone is dumb will tries to assassinate baybars and of course sucks at it and fails yeah edward who is the only person who's fucking competent in this entire situation shows up and he wins his long con in that he like i guess manages to get appointed the guardian of the brethren Oh my god, when that happened, I was like, are you kidding me? Yeah, like, oh my god, are you fucking kidding me? Especially because, like, and this is something I'm going to talk about more in a little bit, there are so many reasons that Edward, that the future Edward I is, like, literally the worst goddamn choice for this. But also, I don't understand, I still don't understand the point of having a guardian there. I don't either. I guess it's, I think they mentioned earlier in the book that it's to keep the brethren from having too much power. But they already don't have any power. They've accomplished nothing in their, like, century of existence. Yeah, and, like, and the whole thing about that was they went to war with the Hospitallers. Hospi- I still can't say that right. <laughs> Years ago, and there's this whole dramatic scene that we completely skip because it doesn't mean anything to the book anyway. It's just, like, Nicholas's motivation for fucking over the Templars. But And then after that, they had a guardian to prevent that from happening again. And it's like, guys... Why? <laughs> why are we shoehorning this in because it's supposed to be like oh my god like edward's in on the brethren that he's been fighting to you know over not overthrow but like dismantle from the inside and maybe he'll have the opportunity to do it now because he's like double spy and it's for fuck's sake (laughs) it's just dumb yeah garen also has been like thrown into prison and then edward finds him and is like nah let's like still like be buddies i want to like keep hiring you because he's done such a good job for the last seven years yeah i know like why wouldn't you just leave him in there to rot like he's been arrested because he left paris with rook Rook to get the the holy grail back and all that crap and it's just and because he deserted his duties yeah and and it's like why would you enlist this guy he's obviously terrible at this job and is not on your side even when you threaten his mother with rape and murder like (laughs) yeah but so for whatever reason he's like nah i want you my friend to like continue to be my employee okay (sighs) i guess it's the only reason for that is because it gets garen out of prison so then he can be a character because prince edward like gets him out of prison he's like he's just going to be your secretary for something you know he's not he's only going to be a templar in like an administrative sense uh which i don't even know how that works but okay that actually makes more sense than anything else because there are like admin people who work for the who like work for the templars and are technically templars but they have actual jobs that matter and no one can do Which Garen doesn't. Yeah. Simon, I guess, tells Elwyn about the whole situation. And so she shows up and I guess they're going to get married again. Yeah, they're like reconcile. And it's this whole... Simon sent Elwyn a letter saying, you know, how he lied to her about what happened and what really happened. And so she comes to reconcile with Will. And I'm like, you can do so much better, girl. Mm -hmm. What are you doing? 
don't travel all this way yes. to meet this piece of shit dude who abandoned you and lied to you and you know it's just it's, Simon would have been so much better just yeah. not telling her at all exactly. let her live her life exactly and anyway then the, like f- like five fucking seconds after she shows up he's like so cool I'm gonna ditch and go to Caesarea to deliver this treaty to Baybars yeah so he goes to do that and like meets Kalawun and they're like buddies I guess and uh, they like talk about his dad, sure. Yeah, because Will, Will at this point knows that Kalawun was the informant on the inside that's part of the brethren and like tells right. him this in like in front of people too. He whispers it, but it's like silent when this is happening. So it's like yeah. people can hear you. Right. Like, what are you doing? Why are you saying this? They have this treaty which will last for 10 years, 10 months, 10 days, and 10 hours, uh, which basically lets the Franks like hold on to what they're currently holding and they like won't fight for a bit. Will asks to go to Safat to bury his dad and Baybar says sure and then that's just like the end of the book. There's yeah. a lot of loose ends. I guess that's why there's two more books. <laughs> so I have the resolution for one that we'll get to, but I don't think I have like I read the series 13 10 years ago, like between that time. Mm-hmm. So I don't remember anything about the other books. And I went looking through the second book to see if it had a resolution for us that I knew you were interested in, but I couldn't really see anything else. So I'm not sure how that plays out. I'm going to bet that none of like n- none of them get resolved. Our questions never, never looked at again. She's just like, yep, cool. I only imagine that there's going to be more questions that we'll have if we ever do a second or third episode right. with this series. And it's like, okay, I hope. My friend Robin, I hope, Robin, you've become a better writer over the years. If you've become a better writer over the years, her new series has, like, so many plot threads that, like, I could barely follow by reading a summary or, like, that I could barely follow by reading the premise. And it's, like, they're going to, like, so many different places and there's so many different things going on that are, like, not actually connected that I assume now you're trying to connect. Man, like, do you have a plan for that? (laughs) I actually cannot wait to read the first book in that series just to see what it's like. Because it's either going to be a hot mess or it's going to be refined from what this book was. Because she has to to have grown in her writing. Like, you can't go backwards from here. There's no possible way. There's only forwards. So I'm... I'm very, yes, well, I'm very, I'm very interested to see with that, that first series. I've got to look up this summary because it's going to be batshit because yeah. <laughs> it's so many things all at once. Yeah. Speaking of how this book is sort of batshit, that is a good opening to ge- deal with the next segment, Vera at Falso, where we talk about what she got right and what she got wrong. And there are certainly things that I, like, there are certainly things that clearly, like, she did research and she based on real life events. It opens with the Battle of Ein Haluth in, in 1260, which is considered to be the beginning of Bebar's rise to power. The bloody massacre after the 1268 siege of Antioch is a real thing. And also the young Prince Edward's involvement in the Ninth Crusade. So there's clearly like stuff, especially on the military end, that she clearly like did her research and got more or less correct. I'm also very relieved that she got attempt the Templar cross right, a basic thing that they could apparently not handle in the movie Kingdom of Heaven. I have not seen that movie, but I'm <laughs> I, I'm not going to seek it out, I don't think. <laughs> I don't recommend it. 
However, there's a lot of things that I feel like she took a number of liberty that like she clearly did research, but took a number of liberties and omitted things that I think might have been important. With Bybars, uh, there's like little details, interestingly, that again, she clearly did research. So it talks about how he had this cataract in his eye that like made his eye weird looking and like was like a star. Like that's a real thing like that he had. But she presents him as this basically like creepy sociopath whose defining motivation in life is his hatred of Christians, which doesn't seem entirely reasonable or fair. He's clearly somebody who was ruthless and who wanted to assert Mamluk power and authority. But his choices seemed, I would say, much more pragmatic that they're presented as being. When he acted with particular ruthlessness and massacred people and went back on treaties, it clearly is coming out of, uh, I would say, concern about the function that those particular places have had as bases for Frankish power. And there are other cases in which there are Christian garrisons who surrender and are spared. It's not like this is just a thing that he always does. And so I find that a little frustrating that he's presented as just hating Christians to the exclusion of pretty much all other motivations. I also just want to share a fun fact that I learned about Baybars that I wish had been in this book, which is that apparently the dude fucking loved cats. (laughs) I love that. Oh, why? That's such a missed opportunity. I know. And like established like a cat sanctuary that was quite well funded in Cairo. Oh my God. I love Baybars. Amazing. Adorable. And I really wish we'd had like Baybars like hanging out with some cats in this book oh that would have been so great like it would have been a nice like humanizing of the man he like he doesn't yeah. like his wife and kids it would have been nice to like see him like i don't know hang out with a cat yeah and not just be like this bloodthirsty person the whole time then of course there's henry the third edward the first and the templars one of the things that is a bit frustrating at the beginning at the outset of that is that it's very focused on there being these tensions between the two and of them like hating each other, which is vastly exaggerated. It also, I would say, very much oversimplifies the relationship that the English royal house had with the Templars. The Templars function, and I'll talk a little bit more about this shortly, but as bankers as well as general creditors. And it's not that uncommon for them to base for people to basically just like leave funds in deposit with the temple. So like they owe them money, but also like if you're at all like concerned about security, like leaving the crown jewels with the Templars is actually a pretty good move. Yeah, because at least they're safe then, you know, like Right. <laughs> One of the things then that Edward does, which is very questionable, is that he seizes a bunch of funds that are left in deposit with the Templars, some of which are actually his, but some of which aren't even his. They belong to a bunch of miscellaneous English nobles. And he's just like, nah, your shit that you left with the Templars, I'm just going to take this and use it for my stuff. Cool, Edward. (laughs) Yeah. And the other thing with Edward in particular that I find so frustrating is I have a constant concern and question in a lot of medieval media about like, where are the Jews? Because the Jews just, like, do not exist in so many things where the Jews should exist. They should at least exist in this book. We are in Jerusalem. We are in the Promised Land. They should very much exist in these places in the East where there are significant Jewish populations. They should also exist in England, where the other group that the Royal House of England is deeply indebted to is the Jews. 
and who they are also very heavily taxing as another way of getting themselves some money, and Edward I, person who for some reason they appoint as the guardian of an, like, a group within the Knights Templar to, like, foster religious harmony. This is the dude who expels the Jews from England. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. It just bothers me so much. The, the, yeah, the whole appointing Edward as the guardian in this book was straight ridiculous. Yeah. In addition to the queer representation being bad as representation, I also find Will's oblivious for, obliviousness frustrating in that it really seems to imply that, like, nobody in the Middle Ages had ever heard of gay people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's not true. Like, people knew. It's not an identity exactly in the same way as it is now. But they knew that there were men who preferred to have sex with other men. Yeah. Like, that's not a shock. Yeah, there would have been space for that. There would have been Edward the First son being pretty into that, probably. Yeah, you know, like, if for Will to be like, oh my god, like, it's, it's very, yeah, it was very disconcerting that it's, Robin framed it in the way that, like, gay relationships are a modern thing. Exactly. And it's like, no, this is, we've had centuries and centuries of history of this how could you not include it (laughs) yeah and one of the various accusations in fact that is brought against the knights templar which i'll get to shortly is specifically an accusation of homosexuality as being rampant within the order (laughs) i mean (laughs) like uh, uh, robin you drop the ball (laughs) which is very possibly true in the sense that it probably was true at like any i would say probably almost any like all-male social context in the medieval world. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's, yeah, it's, for Robin not to include this part is ridiculous to me. Yeah, it's so it's, frustrating. Yes, yeah, so it's just like this very, like, frustrating, again, like, half-assed queer representation. I'm gonna, like, stick in this character who is gay to, like, say I have queer representation, but he doesn't get to actually have a relationship because he's chasing after this man who not only is, as far as we can tell, straight and in love with somebody else, but also is just completely oblivious even to the fact this is what Simon is interested in. Yeah, yeah. I would say another kind of big issue throughout is that there's a lot of uh, just heavy modernism and anachronism in the way people talk. So we've talked about some elements of this already, but it also is something that like shows up, I would say, even in there are details that she throws in that are correct. That she clearly did her research, they're just not how people in the medieval world would have framed things. So that Babar's description of the Franks, for example, that he's like, oh, so the, in Acre, those, uh, the, people called, the, the people called the Franks held the power. It was a term used broadly for the fighting class of the West, whatever their nationality. But the two things the Franks had in common were their Roman Christianity and the fact that they had come to the East, the, the East uninvited. It's not wrong. But it's also not a sentence that I can ever imagine a 13th century Muslim man saying. Yeah. And there's a lot of examples of that. That did feel like one of those things that she pulled out of, not that it existed at the time, but out of a wiki. Like, she was like, okay, that explains, this sentence explains mostly everything. But also, it doesn't explain anything. (laughs) There's also a big modernism problem in terms of how she writes women that in addition to like, all of the problems with how she writes women, they don't even have agency, and yet they still have to talk in ways that implies that they have these very 20th or 21st century ideas about gender. Is that like, yeah, Ellen has yeah. to be like, I have the right to not get married. It's like, you don't think that. 
Like, come on. That's not A, her experience at that time, but also <laughs> historically, like, that's not an opinion that a lot of women would have had. It's just right. like, this is my role. This is how things are done. Oh, right. And I mean, the sense that I have in a lot of ways is that I think there probably were a number of women who didn't want to get married. And I think they probably then like transitioned into expressing that in religious ways and saying like, I really like to be a nun. Yeah, exactly. That was your get out of jail free card. Like, I don't want to marry this guy and pump out a bunch of kids. I'll be a nun. That's great for me. But it wouldn't be like, I'm not going to get married. Right. Or you like marry somebody and he's like 70 and then he dies. And then you're like, yeah. oh, I'm so sad about my late husband's death. I could not possibly marry again. Yeah. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> and so there certainly were women who preferred not to marry or who like really enjoyed widowhood, which was kind of the dream. But they didn't like express it out loud in that way. Mm -hmm. And so I find very frustrating the like insistence on the only way women can have any agency or be considered at all like relatable is by basically giving them these like 21st century opinions and ways of expressing those opinions. Yes. Yeah. And yet even despite that, they still don't really have any agency. Yeah. <laughs> that was like her only agency was saying this. And then it's just like, nope, that's done now. <laughs> yeah. Then of course there's the anima templi, which in addition to not being a thing is also not the way really anybody thought about anything in the medieval world. This is another frustration that I have with how people talk about the Middle Ages is this insistence that people could only be relatable if they have these very modern, rationalist, pseudo-atheist ideas about religion that, like, we're going to, like, end religious division and, I guess, like, consolidate all the religions into, like, one and not have different religions? Like, what? No one would think of that idea. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's very much a modern spin on how to, re how to come about with world peace, is just unite everybody under this big umbrella of religion, and then we're cool. Right. It's like, that's not <laughs> I mean, A, is obtainable, but B, like, how? To the extent that that's an idea people would have had in the Middle Ages, they had that idea. The version of that idea that they had is, oh, yeah, we'll have peace and we'll end religious divisions by having all of you convert to Christianity. Surprise, motherfuckers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, that's the medieval version of that is, like, religious unity through conversion. Mm -hmm. Not through negotiation, through you are this now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then in practice, that doesn't even actually work because then they're like, oh, I'm not sure you're a real Christian. Yeah. But, like, that's how Christians, and for that matter, Muslims essentially see, like, that's how you have a unity of religions is that you convert to our religion. And not that the Jews were any better, they just, like, never were ruling anything. Mm. But, like, nobody wanted that kind of religious unity and peace. I mean, even the Jews who are a group who are not ever in power in the medieval period are very much engaged in extremely vitriolic, anti, certainly anti-Christian polemic, to some extent anti-Muslim polemic, but they like the Christians less. Like I was talking about this with my students recently who were really shocked because I was telling them about this text, The Toldot Yeshu, which is an early medieval anti-Christian polemic, which is basically a retelling of the Gospels. And in it, their response to being accused of being the killers of Christ isn't to say, no, we didn't. It's to say, yes, we did. And that dude deserved it. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and 
like, that is very much the medieval mindset. Like, nobody wants everyone to all be friends. <laughs> it's very much a deeply modern, like, concept. And it's very much, I think, coming out of, and we talked about this before, this real desire to see the Knights Templar as being this kind of secretive order that has some, like, exciting secret mission. And this then leads into the next segment, the Historia ad Veritas, where I talk about a real historical person or event. And I want to talk a bit about the Knights Templar and how, like, honestly, they're just not as interesting as people think they are. <laughs> is the short version. <laughs> so the Knights Templar, they're just a military order. That's just what they're for. They're for prosecuting the Crusades. They do have a complex initiation ritual. They have some amount of secrecy. It's very hard for me to think that there's any possibility of there being anything particularly unorthodox or honestly progressive in that given that one of their very early supporters and the person responsible for helping to create a lot of this is Bernard of Clairvaux, who is a deeply orthodox Christian figure, who is a saint, who engages in a lot of anti-heretical and anti-Jewish preaching. I mean, I just, I just don't buy that. That like this group that Bernard of Clairvaux is really involved in is like so is like doing anything so fantastic or so essentially unorthodox. To some extent, I would say the most interesting thing about the Templars and the most in some ways progressive thing about the Templars has nothing to do with anything secretive or religious or dramatic. It has to do with economics, that they got a huge influx of donations, they became very wealthy, and ended up actually increasingly having a lot of members of the order who are non-combatants who are involved in basically financial management. So the Templars are basically a like hedge fund slash bank for a lot of their history. That like they have a ton of money. They have people who are Templars whose job is managing money. They increasingly then get deposits from rulers and other people who just are trusting them to safeguard their money. They're also getting a lot of deposits from crusaders and pilgrims uh, who then are basically saying, okay, I'm going to give you my money in France, and then you're going to give me a letter of credit so then I can have money and take out money from the Templars in Jerusalem. And so that's in, like the most like interesting thing and like different thing that the Templars are doing that's like new is like banking. That's so great, <laughs> considered how movies, TV, and games and fiction really frame the Templars for being this like secret order that does all these like secret missions to for what whatever end but you like they're just a bank i, I never knew they were just a straight up bank like... yeah it's like they're 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 just like they're not that dramatic they're just a bank yeah. and it's actually banking which is probably really their downfall because so they're lending out a bunch of money and one of the people to whom they're lending money is Philip IV of France, known as Philip the Fair. This is fair as in, like, sexy, not fair as in just because he's definitely not that. <laughs> because so Philip's habit seems to have been that he just borrowed a lot of money from people and then is like, nope, you're out of here. So he does this with Ital the Italian money lenders based in France that he borrows a ton of money and then is like, nope, y'all have to leave France. He does this <laughs> with the French Jews. He borrows a ton of money and then is like, nah, y'all are expelled now. And he does this with the Templars. 
And then ultimately, with the assistance of Pope Clement V, who's a pope who's based in Avignon at this point, and so essentially they're pretty much under the control of the French king, he then, the like two of them working together, then collude to make all of these dramatic accusations against the Templars that they're desecrating the cross and worshipping idols and engaging in homosexuality and financial fraud, which is probably the one of all of these most likely to be true, or maybe also the homosexuality, but not any more than any other order. And so they're accused of all of these things. A number of uh, high-ranking Templars confess under torture. Based on the strength of this, the order is ultimately formally disbanded in 1312 by the Pope. And the thing that's actually then the kind of like most like secretive and fun and weird about the Templars and that I think gave rise to all of these myths is first of all, like these accusations that in some ways seem to have come out of nowhere if you're especially if you're not thoughtful about this political context. And it's like, oh, were they doing these like creepy heretical things? And then the other part is that and this is genuinely kind of cool, is that according at least to legend, the Grandmaster of the Templars, Jacques de Molay, when burned at the stake in 1314, yelled out basically that his adversaries, Philip IV of France and Pope Clement V, would both die within a year, and then they did. <laughs> so it's legend, it's very possible that like somebody came up with that legend after the other two had died. Yeah, very, uh, very coincidental that. But... Yeah. But it certainly is something that I think probably contributed to this kind of legend surrounding the Templars as like maybe there is something like a little weird or magical or mystical going on with them. I think they're interesting, but I mostly think they're interesting ultimately as an economic historian. And I think it's really funny in a lot of ways that there are so many conspiracy theories surrounding this group that in many ways is like very just like pragmatic and normal and just like wanted to basically like have money <laughs> <laughs> they just want to be bankers there's nothing wrong with that exactly i mean like maybe there is because of capitalism but like they're certainly not like doing anything especially like secretive or like heretical they're they're, they're just a bunch of dudes who want to like fight some wars and have a bank <laughs> <laughs> This is something we've already touched on to some extent, but our next segment, Fabula Nostra, is uh, one which I uh, have us kind of think about how might we maybe create our own version of this story, basically that we like better. I think we've kind of um, written our own story as we've been talking this, uh, yeah. talking about this book, because I would love... I don't want Will. I don't want Garen. I don't want any of that perspective. I want to know about the female characters. Yeah. I want to know their backgrounds. I want to know how Adela came to own that brothel. And obviously she's going to live in this version mm -hmm. and um, going forward from there. And then you kind of got like Will's and Garen's adventure on in the background. But I want to know basically about all the women. I want to have that alternative book. Yeah where it doesn't involve, like, Will's in there, sure, as a passerby, and Garen's in there mm -hmm. as a former customer that ended up getting arrested uh, for ditching his <laughs> duties, you know, and and all of that. But it's just, I want to know about, if we have to centre on Will in some respect, I want to know about his mother, I want to know about his sister, I want to know, because there was another baby born after Will killed his sister. Right. I want to know about her and what happened yeah. with that, and... How is the mother dealing with the fact that her husband has now been killed yeah. in fighting the good fight? 
and I just want all of that and it's such a generalization <laughs> for what yeah. the book would be about but it's hard to center on specifics when we're not really given specifics about these women like yeah. we've got Elowen where she's going to ditch Will altogether obviously and go and live her good life <laughs> you know and Adela running that and, and running her brothel and and everything that comes along with that but it's just uh, it, uh, I, that's what I would really like make them more than two dimensional they're not even really two dimensional they're like one dimensional yeah. <laughs> in this book you know I want some depth I want some adventures I want some conflict I want you know something interesting to happen that's not f- focused on Will being a dick and Garen being a dick and yeah. Jock being a dick you know it's just any anything anything give me queer rep- representation give yeah. me Adela ends up opening a same-sex brothel you know like give yeah. me any of that Adela's like fucks Garen because Garen's paying her but like maybe there's a nice lady in the brothel who's really who she's into yeah exactly like give me that little bit of like romance and conflict and and all that kind of stuff and honestly I would love it to just be about Adela but we have yeah. to have <laughs> certain characters flow in and I out guess. around that. I would read the shit out of that book. <laughs> yeah. I also spent some time, because this was so cinematic, coming up with what my casting might be for a movie, although a movie that I would probably write in some ways very differently from the book. And uh, I think it is very telling. The actresses that I came up with for Elwyn and Adela are actresses who I think like actually like do a pretty good job of playing some badass women. So I was thinking actually Brie Larson could do a good Elwyn who has more to do. Oh, absolutely. She would rock that role. Right. And I was thinking Alicia Vikander as Adela. And so I think that would be a lot of fun. And I also inspired by having seen Little Women recently, Timothy Chalamet plays Laurie as basically this kind of like obnoxious fuck boy and he sucks. <laughs> perfect for will then (laughs) yep so i'm thinking him for will yeah absolutely and also the eminently like pathetic and hateable alfie allen aka theon Greyjoy, as garen oh that's perfect that's perfect casting and then the people i want to actually be like the men who are more central is i actually would like to have the movie have uh, Jeremy Irons as Everard and Idris Elba as Hassan and them actually working with the women to accomplish their mission and the men they're like oh fuck I guess we have to like occasionally use them for something yeah exactly like he's training Will on the side and he's like I can't stand this dude (laughs) and he's like Elwyn can you just like can you just like get this dude out like the fuck out of my hair for like an hour just please like do a dumb food (laughs) game with him like I don't care I just cannot deal with this child (laughs) oh that's so great oh i would watch that oh that would be so great so yeah so i think that would be fun is if i adapted this into a movie but made it completely different from the book yeah oh i mean you'd have to rewrite it there's no way this could land now if we took the core of what happens in this book and put it into a movie you'd have to do you just basically start from scratch yeah keep the central characters that you like and then start from scratch yeah for our last main section, Estimatio, 
how would you rate this movie on a scale from one to five using whatever criteria you'd like? This fictional movie or the book? I'm oh, sorry, uh, rating the book. This is like the like, this is like only the second time I've done a book, so I just keep forgetting. Yeah, no, that's okay. <laughs> I was going to rate your fictional movie ten out of ten already because <laughs> no, I love sorry, that casting. Book that we read. <laughs> yeah. Um, the book. I mean, when I was looking through our notes before I was like mm, like a 2.5 out of 5 but now I think it's a solid 1 yeah. like I didn't realise how much I disliked a majority of the characters a majority of the plot a majority of anything that happens and the lack of moving forward and I didn't realise how much I disliked all of that so I'd probably just give it a one like this is a, a book that I straight up loved when I was a teenager but I think that's really indicative of my mindset at the time and just yeah. clutching onto anything that was historical fiction and that we've all like grown as people and become more aware of the ways in which certain of the kind of things that we talked about are really problematic yeah there was like I was going into this book completely oblivious of a lot of social issues and and things like that and it was yeah so this was all new to me and having you know preconceptions that were formed from watching tv and movies about certain things like sex work and stuff like that I was like oh okay you know sure but now I look at it and I'm like oh We've torn this book apart for being how bad it is. And I don't feel guilty in the least. (laughs) Yeah. I think I'm going to go with a two, which in part is going to stay that high. This is like my like, this is like my like way that I'm going now is that I gave El Cid a 1.5 and El Cid after I rewatch it, I'm like, this movie is basically fascist propaganda for the Francoist government. And so I feel like I have to give this book higher than I gave El Cid the work of Francoist propaganda. I suppose if you grade it on that sliding scale. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's like... So on the virtue of it not being literal fascist propaganda, it's getting yeah. a two. High praise. <laughs> High praise. Not fascist propaganda, raves Sarah F. Decker. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'd love that to be on the cover. <laughs> Poor, poor Robin Young. She, uh, I hope she never listens to this podcast. I know, I know. When we started this, I was like, oh, it would be cool if she listened. But then I'm like, no, never do it. Oh, no. You will walk away a broken woman. Like, we have oh, torn no. it apart. And I'm sure she's lovely and has grown her writing. But, <laughs> oh, there's just, I have so many issues with this book. Yeah, my, my one other podcast episode thus far that I've done on a book is on a book that genuinely, I think we like both came out with like wanting to I can't remember exactly what like score we gave it but like it was around a four or five. And like, we genuinely liked it. And her I was like, I want you to be on my podcast one day. But I, I hope Robin never listens to this. She might be upset. Yeah. Sorry, girl, if you're listening. Like, we love you. But this book is not our cup of tea. Sorry. Maybe the new one's better. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on and uh, joining me to talk about this. Thank you for having me. I had a great time. I'm so glad we were able to finally record because we like it's been like two, three months. We've been trying to get a session and there's always something that came up and we eventually just talked it to Templar Curse. Yes, yeah, so like. <laughs> hopefully the Templar Curse is now at an end and this episode will be released with no further problems. Yeah, I think to ultimately resolve it, I have to burn the book. That's what has to happen. 
You'll have to burn your copy because I can't burn mine because I read it on a Kindle. Oh, no, yeah. Please don't burn your Kindle. <laughs> I, I'll burn the, uh, my copy for both of us. Okay, I can ritually <laughs> delete it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the evil's been released. We're free. Yes. <laughs> so uh, where can the listeners of Media Evil find you on the internet? A lot of the listeners will probably already be my Facebook friends, <laughs> which is great. Hi, girls. I love you. But I have an Instagram, but I don't update it that much. It's my username is floofle.love, F-L-O-O-F-L.L-O-V-E. That's probably where you can find me if you have questions about this episode or things that I've dropped that I forgot to talk about later on yeah that's I don't I mean I have a Twitter but I only use it to tweet at podcasts so it's not very interesting (laughs) (laughs) and yes and shout out to our mutual friends in the moon cult they'll know who we're talking about yeah (laughs) and if you have enjoyed this podcast please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app it should be available on all of them and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and I will read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please also follow the podcast on Twitter at MediaEvilPod and join our Facebook group. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah Ipdecker. If you have any questions or suggestions, I also would love to hear from you at MediaEvilPod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Media Evil. Bye! Bye!